the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And I, as fate would have it, am Mitch LaFawn. Isn't that great how that always, always works out? Joining me on this episode from Megadeth, it is Dave Mustaine. And then after that, we have got Sebastian back and Jack Russell. But before we get to all these great interviews, I have on the phone the one, the only, trickster, guitarist, and Def Leppard utility man, Steve Brown. Good day, Steve. Hello, hello, hello. All righty. Yes. Ready to rock. Great, to be, great yeah. to be with you, rock talkers and Mitch LaFon. Yes, so before we get to all our guests, if, because this is the burning question, if Joe Elliott was ever to call in sick, would you fill in? Uh, at this point, I would probably say yeah, um, but uh, the the odds of that, and knowing Joe so well, the odds of that are uh, slim to none. And because yeah. uh, Joe is very, very healthy, and uh, he's singing better than he has probably in the last twenty years. I mean, it's amazing, and I'm so proud of him because he worked his ass off to uh to get back to where he used to be and he had a lot of problems over you know probably 2015 when i was out with them and 2016 he had a, a rough patch with his voice and he worked uh, i've never seen a guy um at his age and his stature take it so serious and work so hard he worked with his vocal coach every day for a year uh, Roger Love, who's the famous uh, rock vocal instructor, and uh, he's you know like I said, and I think you know you watch the YouTube videos, he's singing better now than he has. I I honestly believe in the last twenty years yeah. for now, sure. Now now jokes aside, if uh, Sav Savage ever had to step out, are, are you in? A, do you play bass? Would you be able to fill in for that, or is that like really sort of stretching? The imagination. No, Mitch. I mean, I think at this point, you know, I, I think uh, I do play bass. Yes, I do play bass, of course. And it's one of my passions. Uh, it's a great relief anytime I go and jam with a band and they go, Steve, you want to come up and do a song? And I go, yeah, I want to come up and play bass. I don't want to play guitar. I love strapping the bass down low, you know, looking like Duff McKagan or, you know, Sid Vicious. And uh, but what's funny about the bass is when 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 PJ and I play with Eric Martin, we do one of PJ's songs. Uh, You'd stick out from his uh, great solo record, Boutique Sound Frames. A little plug for PJ Farley, the the great. And uh, I play bass on that live, so that's a lot of fun. You know, where I give PJ my guitar, he gives me the bass, and I get to just you know spread my legs and you know kind of do the Pete Way thing and. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I love to play bass. So with Def Leppard, uh, at this point, I've learned with, with those guys, never rule out anything. You know, whether they say, Steve, come up before the show and tell jokes. Uh, Joe and I love the movie Caddyshack, so we, we repeat those lines and Spinal Tap lines a um, hundred times a day. So, yeah, we, there, anything's possible. But, uh, you know, let's see what happens. Ah, it's going to be great. Now, now you are part of Eric Martin's uh, solo band, right? That's that. Yes, is... yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Martin and the Dirty Tricksters. Yes, <laughs> and the Dirty Tricksters, and of course, you will be at the uh, New England Rock Fest on August seventeenth, and or August seventeenth in Chicopee, Massachusetts. And uh, 
that's hosted by me. So isn't that great? Oh, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, and you've never seen that, so I'm really looking forward to it because it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's a great band. You know, it's PJ and I and the great Eric Martin and Joey Casada on drums, who Joey was in the band ZO2, and, um, you know, he plays he plays with uh, PJ and I. We play with the comedian Jim Brewer. And oh, wow. Joey's just a phenomenal drummer, so the band is killer, and we do, uh, we do a lot of fun stuff. You know, we do the Mr. Big and Trickster hits. I sing the Trickster songs, and, and then we do some you know oddball stuff you know we do some of the eric's eric martin solo stuff that you know people love and that i love and uh it's just it's just awesome and eric's a brother you know like uh, you know my saying with meeting and, ha- and playing with different people in bands and whatever is i go or, you know i go he's one of us you know same kind of humor same kind of vibe on life and eric is definitely one of us so we have we have a lot of fun which you'll see yeah, and of course, uh, the last time we saw each other in person was at the M3 Festival, and Sebastian Bach was part of that. So in our second mm-hmm. segment, we will we will chat that. But just before we get over to uh, Dave Mustaine, let me just ask you, in Def Leppard, you replaced Phil and you also replaced Viv. Different guitar parts. Was that challenging for you to play? I mean, mentally, did you have all the Viv parts in your head and then say, oh, God, now i got to do these? Uh, like, Was that challenging? Or was that like, no, nah, it's a piece of cake. You just put slide in, slide out. Honestly, Mitch, I didn't have any time to think about anything like that with this situation because, you know, when I did the Vivian, when I filled in for Vivian starting in 2013, there was a lot of prep time, you know, where I was put on call and, and, and you know, I was put on a, a, a wage to learn, you know, I was get basically getting paid to learn the Def Leppard and be on call and be ready at a moment's notice, which I was. This was, uh, I kid you not, my phone rang at 7.30 in the morning. Luckily, you know, I have, I have young children. I have a six-year-old daughter, and we get up early in the morning. I'm having my coffee, and the, my phone starts blowing up, and it's their manager, uh, Mike Kobayashi. And uh, he filled me in on what's happening and basically said, Steve, can you be in Albany in, you know, a couple hours? And and the one thing I've learned with Def Leppard and and over the years is always have a suitcase packed, always have your stage clothes ready and guitars ready to go. So I had my suitcase ready to go, my stage clothes and two guitars and my best friend, Jim DeSalvo, who I grew up with since I've known since I was eight years old, called him up. I said, dude, we were on a mission. We're going to Albany for Def Leppard. And, and I was uh, at the arena up in Albany by uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, as soon as Phil got there, working on parts. Um, Getting back to what you said, was it a challenge? Not so much. Um, The fact is, I knew all the songs already. Uh, You know, in 2013, when I got when I got put on, you know, put on staff to do this with the guys, um, I had to learn at that point they were doing the Viva Hysteria thing. And so they were doing uh, 45, I think 45 songs. So I had to learn all deep cuts, uh, you know, the high and dry stuff, the on through the night stuff, you know, uh, Wasted, Rock Brigade, um, Mira Mira from from the, high and the dry. Good stuff. deep cuts. This, oh yeah, the stuff. I mean, you know, <laughs> you and I come out. We're. I mean, I've been a Def Leppard fan since 1980. I still have the cassette of On Through the Night that I bought. Um, 
so with that being said, I, my knowledge of everything was, was uh, I had everything down already in my head. I mean, like I tell people, Def Leppard is in my DNA, I think, you know, as far as a band that, you know, and being that I get to fill in and help them out, the fact of the matter that they're one of my favorite bands, regardless, really, really helps everything because the material is just so natural to me. And that that was really it, you know, so there was no time to, you know, get nervous or do anything. And I think, you know, the thing about it is, is the, the friendship that I have with the guys. And, you know, the, first of all, first of all, the reason why I got this gig was, and I've told this many times, was the vocals. You know, there are a lot of great guitar players out there who could play these parts and do these things, but there's no one out there that could do playing the parts, sing, and have the tone that you need to have with Def Leppard. And luckily, my uh, funny talking voice translates into a, uh, a Def Leppard vocal voice where, you know, uh, Phil years ago was the one who recognized that when we did the Mike Huckabee show on Fox. And that was the first time we ever did anything in public together. And he called me up the next day and he was like, I, I'm amazed at how our vocals blend. And I think that was so when Vivian got diagnosed with cancer, Phil told the guys, I got the guy, I got the guy, boom, boom, boom. And luckily, Joe was a big fan of the 40-foot Ringo stuff and my stereo fallout stuff, which, you know, I'm the vocalist on. And so that was it. But And then when I got to the gig, it was, uh, you know, it was just like there was definitely, you know, the nerves in everybody and could you pull this off? And I got the pep talks from management and, and, and Joe, uh, Joe wasn't a hundred percent convinced. And, you know, and I just told him, I said, I will, I will never. And I've told these guys this when I saw him last week for, you know, before the, before the break, uh, I will never let you down. I will give you the best, of the best that I have and everything that I have. And, and, and the coolest thing was right before we started really working on stuff before the show in Albany, Phil said to the guys, there w- there is no one on the planet who could do this except Steve. And that was like, for me, it was a, 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 a validation of that of complete validation. And, and I was like, wow, that is, you know, this is going to make me want to work harder to make this that much better. You know, not like I would do anything different, but it was just, you know, and, and my love for Phil, I mean, you know, he's a, he's like a brother to me and the guys, you know, they're, they're, you know, they become family, you know, and then though my stints with them are short, the time we spend together is, is massive, you know, in the sense that, you know, like I've said before, Def Leppard treats me, I'm, I'm one of the band. I don't, I don't, I don't drive in a, in a crew bus. I don't stay in a separate hotel. I stay where they stay and I eat where they eat and I drink what they drink. You know what I mean? So it's, we're, we're brothers and, um, yeah, you know, and that was it. So, it was, uh, you know, an incredible, incredible thing. And of course, you know, sadly, you know, as great as my time with Def Leppard is, it's usually surrounded by unfortunate circumstances, as was this. But, you know, um, being that we're family, you know, that's what happens. Who do you call? You call, you know, call Steve. So anything can happen with Def Leppard. And, and Phil, you know, Phil kind of said that, 
at the beginning of uh, beginning of the year because every time they announce a tour, him and I have this conversation. You know, well, what's well, what's happening? You know, Phil always sends me the set list, so at least, and he, you know, his his great line was, anything can happen with uh, you know with sixty year old men, you know, and and uh, and we've seen this with numerous bands, you know, that as the older bands get, things happen, health, family, uh, and. Uh, you know, luckily there are guys who can, you know, cover it. But for Def Leppard, certainly I, I am that guy and honored, humbled, um, you know, and they, they're filming a documentary right now, which is uh, so cool. And okay. I'm so happy for them. And uh, I was I was a part of it, you know, for the first time, you know, I was able to do an interview and the guys have let me for the first time, you know, really do interviews and and kind of. Uh, you know, enjoy the spotlight. You know, I'm not, I'm not let that like kind of secret where, you know, you, you do the fill in guy plays the shows and then it's all forgotten. And, uh, you know, I love the guys for that because they want, they want me to shine and they want me to succeed. You're, you're not the, uh, the keyboardist behind the, uh, behind the drum riser, which is, which is good, right? So- yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know that guy as well, you know, and, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> so with the Def Leppard thing, you know, getting back to it. So it was uh, immediate, um, right to work and there's nothing that really needs to be spoken. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I got up to Albany and watched the show and, uh, you know, because again, this is not just getting up on stage and playing music. This is getting up on stage with Def Leppard, putting on a show, looking like a rock star, moving, choreographed where you have to be at certain times, you know, all the lighting cues and everything. And for me, there again, why this always works out is I've known the guys since the Hysteria Tour. I've seen them multiple times on every tour they've ever done since 1987. So there's no one who knows what's going to happen as far as where Sav's going to be on the stage, what Joe's going to do. I know all the moves. So that's another thing, you know, because I know there's a lot of bitter guitar players. You know, you know, the, you know the joke, you know, how many guitar players does it take to screw in a light bulb? You know, four, 15, one to screw in the light bulb and 14 to stand around with their arms crossed going, I can do it better than him. <laughs> That's you know? how it works, right? So there, there's a ton of guys out there who are probably listening. No, boy, I could do No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. So, you know, but so getting back to it, we get up to Albany. Phil leaves. He's got to go home. Family emergency. I get on Phil's bus and drive to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then wake up in the morning. And then I get out my trusty notebook, which I've had since 2013, you know, dollar store notebook that has all my Def Leppard notes and cheat sheets and licks, whatever I need to write down. I'm old school, you know, the, the new kids nowadays are all on, you know, the computer and they got their iPads. Now, uh, I still do it with a pen and paper, a pencil and paper most of the time so I can erase things and and uh and i just got to work you know i I slept for a couple hours got up and then put on put on the tunes started making notes uh and then up in albany when phil still was there there were a couple things you know you know let's get rock the solo i had to get some licks out of him and he just showed me the chorus part to love bites um you know the arpeggio part that phil plays while singing you know which is you know a little bit of a tricky bit you know and 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 again you know the Def leopard catalog the material is uh, this is not easy stuff to play you listen to it and it sounds so great and so 
easy and you think it's easy, but, uh, and I've said this before, you know, the, the, the catalog and the way Def Leppard and Mutt Lang wrote songs is very unorthodox, you know, and then so to play this stuff, um, they, they do very unique things. So it, it's, it's not, you know, it's not cookie cutter, you know, uh, easy, hard rock at all to play. And this is coming from a guy, you know, like I said, I know all the Van Halen stuff inside out playing and singing, you know, so it was, uh, there, there are definitely challenges. So, uh, Hershey got to the hotel, practiced, went through the set a couple times, went through the songs and, um, you know, their sound guy and I, I have a hard drive with all the material like in Pro Tools. So we made mixes, Ronan and I made mixes of all the songs live with the, a low backing track of the band and um, uh, Joe's vocal and Phil's vocal and Phil's guitar parts really loud. So I was able to really zero in on, you know, all the, all the little bits. So it was just a matter of just getting it. And I went through, went through, made notes, and a couple hours later, I was in a hotel room with uh, with Joe and Vivian, and we did like a quiet rehearsal, which is just we played along to played along to the mixes, and uh, you know, just me and Vivian playing through little practice amps, and you know, just kind of going through, making sure the vocals, and again, you know, with Def Leppard. Uh, the vocals are everything, you know, like Joe before in 2014, before I did the first show with them, as we're about to go on stage, Joe pulled me aside and he says, I don't care what you do on your guitar, but make sure you get all the vocals. So that's, you know, that's the most important part. And, and that was it. We had a great quiet rehearsal, you know, Viv and I just tightened up a couple things and, and, uh, you know, and that was, that was really cool for Vivian and I, and Viv, you know, has become a, a, a very good friend. And, you know, I mean, it's not, I can imagine, you know, for him, there are moments where it's not easy, you know, where here's the guy who filled in for him a couple times. And then now I'm filling in for the other guitar player, but he was great. We had a, we had a great laugh and, you know, as always with Vivian, you know, I, I was such a huge fan as a kid of the Dio stuff Dio, and, 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 and now talking about last in line, you know, we talk about that and you see that's his real passion. So Viv and I, we were talking about the new record after we rehearsed and stuff and, you know, it's just really great. And, um, and, and just quickly, so, speaking of that M3 festival, Last in Line were there, and yeah. that set by by Viv and the guys, other than maybe the Sebastian set, was just so incredibly tight. Just, it was it was just a great, and it was just nice to see Vivian totally unleashed on guitar. Not to say that he's contained in a box in Def Leppard, by, by all means that's not the case, but doing the Dio stuff, he, he just wails like he doesn't wail anywhere else, and it was just great to see. Just oh, really yeah, they, great they're, great. you know, and Andrew Freeman's an old friend of ours, you know, he grew up kind of nearby, you know, he's a, he's a New York State guy, so we've known Andy for, you know, God, 25 years, and we're, we're such good friends with him, and, and Vinny, and and um, and Phil on bass, you know, what a great addition. They were, they were awesome. You know, I did Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp last year with Vinny Apice, and me and uh, Joel Hookstra, and Tony Franklin and uh, this girl uh, Gretchen Men. We were we were the all star band, and uh, to play with those guys and to just be with them for a couple of days, be with you know with Vinny. He's such a great guy, and I see why you know him and Viv get along so well and play so good together. Yeah, I agree. Now let's let's get over to our first interview here. We have Dave Mustaine. They have reissued 
the debut album, Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. And this time it is called The Final Kill. So Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, The Final Kill. It has a whole bunch of live songs, demos. It has been redone. Uh, Dave even recut the vocals for These Boots Are Made For Walking. Uh, Just some great stuff. A lot of great stories. And uh, on the other side of the interview, we'll come back, Steve, and we'll talk about some of the times you've had a chance to meet Dave, and we'll also get into the whole Sebastian Bach, Skid Row stuff. So uh, here we go. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, Megadeth frontman, Dave Mustaine. We are speaking with Megadeth's Dave Mustaine. The uh, new re-release of uh, Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good is out now. Dave, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Yeah, so um, let's talk about this uh, re-release here in the uh, press release it says that the album finally um is as you envisioned it uh talk to me about what was sort of the uh the intended vision i should say talk to me about what was sort of the intended vision and 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 uh, how that is now well i i think that what we wanted the record to sound like at the time the technology was different so we were trying to accomplish something great, but we were severely handca- handicapped by uh, the people that we had chosen to have in our lives, as well as the decisions we made ourselves. And um, <clears throat> there was also, excuse me, a lot of um, just not cool things that were going on at the label at the time. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm a little under the weather right now. I, I uh, my throat's kind of roached from the uh, last couple of days. So right for opening for the Scorpions, by the way. Tell we- me if I have to if I have to speak up for you, okay, bud? No, no, no. I, I hear you're great. And, and well, in fact, let me just quickly talk about that. Uh, you have been doing these shows over in Europe, <clears throat> opening opening for the Scorpions. I saw you in September in Laval, Quebec, opening for the Scorpions. Just talk to me about that combination and getting a chance to open for a band uh, that has been so important uh, for you. Um, what's it like being on a bill with the Scorpions? Uh, well, you know, the, it's the Scorpions are one of those bands that um, I liked a lot, their early music. And uh, just like every other band that you listen to as a kid growing up, there's there comes a time, it happened in our career too, where you know you make a record that isn't what the fan base wants. And um, you know, I uh, can't really put my finger on on a lot of records by a lot of people. You know, I'm sure you can, like for example, with Kiss. After Destroyer, right. I kind of kind of tuned out. I was a huge Kiss fan, but I just kind of tuned out. So, um, you know, with the Scorpions, for me, um, I, I've been a fan uh, for years and years and years. So being able to go out and play with them, it, it's been fun. Um, I, I will say that I kind of wish things were a little bit more on a on an even scale because, um, you know, these are the kind of guys that when you play with them, you uh, can learn a lot. Uh you can learn a lot of good stuff. You can learn bad stuff too, but you can learn a lot of good stuff. And and I think if if we just had, you know, it was just the two of us, or you know, there was uh, situations where both bands could play the same amount of time, and we both could, you know, maybe face off at the opposite ends of the arena and and, and show the fans what each band has. I think it would be great because 
you know, we've we've had great examples like the Scorpions show us, you know, what to do, and and you know, we've had other bands that that were touring on this tour too. Don't 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 put uh, all the credit to the Scorpions because we're playing with Kiss and Choose Priest too. Uh, however, when you're playing with great bands like this, um, it's really up to you if you're going to miss the the gift or not because you can get all fanboyish. Uh, or you can act like you're a rock star. And uh, for me, I found that right in the middle, that's where the sweet spot is. You know, you you can show the bands that you're out as a special guest uh, on tour with them. You can show them that you like the band, unless, of course, you know, they they don't give a shit. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that's really good for us, too, because we've done tours uh, many many years ago one in particular that was really ugly and I learned how to not treat a support band from uh, two guys in, in this one particular band and you know it, you, it, it takes what it takes it takes what it takes to, for you to learn how to be a nice person or for you to learn that you see the same people on the way up as you do on the way down you know so I'm really excited about where we're at. I'm sorry about the new record and, and uh, super excited about what happened with killing. Yeah. And and we'll get back to that. And I just mentioned that because literally when we're done on this call, I have to phone Uli John Roth and it's just like, you know what? It's so great to be able to talk to Dave just before Uli. So, so let's get back to killing it is my business and business is good. Um, sure. talk, talk to me about going into the studio that first time. Cause we, we know the story. You came out of Metallica and you had this piss and vinegar, and there was something to prove. Um, you weren't intended to be the vocalist at first. You, you had tried different people, including including Billy Bonds. Um, when did it get become apparent that you had to do the singing? And were you concerned at all? Were you scared at all? Did you think, uh-oh, uh, can I actually pull this off? Talk to me about those those early days and, and the search for a, a singer and then you got to the point where you just said okay it's got to be me well i wasn't the one that said it was it had to be me i i was the last person that wanted to sing uh, i just wanted to play my guitar <clears throat> but uh you know it, it there just was this period of time that that we tried and tried and tried and it just wasn't working because you know for me i think if you're going to be in a band together you need to you need to have the right attitude you know, you just you just have to. You've got to. Everybody has to have the same kind of outlook, you know. Because uh, if not, it's it's one of these things. It's not like the other. You know what I mean? And uh, let, let me go back real quick to Uli, though. You're going to talk to Uli, which is great. I'm, yeah. Uh, I was just, just talking to uh, <laughs> um, uh, Rudolph Shanker uh, a couple nights ago. Um, he he gets all excited when I talk about his band in the press and. And I had said that there was a couple songs that I liked, and and he goes, oh, of course, you know, you you mentioned the Sales of Sharon, and it's like, well, how can you not? That's got one of the greatest solos in the world in there. And and I saw Uli when I first went to Dean Guitars over in Germany a while ago, and and um, it's uh, I'm really grateful that I got a chance to meet him. I hope that his his uh, project, whatever he's doing right now, is successful. Yeah, he's he's. Uh... He's doing a North American tour, and it got delayed because of immigration issues, and, and uh, he's just always great to, to, to be around. In fact, uh, he has one of those strange stories where the last time he was here, 
he asked me to take him to Walmart to go shopping for pillows, and it was just very bizarre to see Uli John Roth in his stage clothes checking out at Walmart with these two big pillows under his arms. But uh, yeah. that, <laughs> that is weird. It, but it was, you know, it, great. Well, okay, let me ask you then this uh, on, a, on a serious note, though. In terms of guitarists, though, how would you rank or rate i mean does he qualify as one of your favorite guitarists or do you look more like to an eddie van halen or a Jimi hendrix or i mean is is uli or or even rudolph in that sort of top tier of guys that you look to and go yeah they've got it uh uli definitely does um as far as like top tier guitar playing is concerned rudy is an amazing rhythm guitar player and um he uh is uh a great songwriter too. So um, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think that it's um, maybe. Um, I don't want to say appropriate because that sounds like I'm doing something inappropriate. But I, I don't think it's uh, right to compare um, a rhythm guitarist to a lead guitarist. It's it's just not. I don't think it's fair. Right. Having said that, um, you know I, I've said before my. Uh, three favorite rhythm guitar players besides myself was, um, Angus, uh, and excuse me, Malcolm, uh, Hetfield and, and Rudy. And I thought that the four of us were really great examples of how to hold the rhythm section down while uh, the guitar players do their job, uh, on top of what we're doing. You know, you don't have to, uh, be the lead guitar player to, to, um, be important and, and have people take notice and, and have a job that makes, all the difference in the world you know a really great played rhythm track will give the lead guitar player an, an amazing magic canvas to paint on yeah oh yeah i agree and and i think paul stanley is also a great example of that now you you did mention the word inappropriate for for years you you thought i guess that playing the song the conjuring live was inappropriate you've now played it again for the first time in whatever it was, 17, 18 years. Um, just quickly talk to me about that decision to break, to, to bring it back. Was it was it something that you struggled with for a long time, or did you finally just sort of say, listen, a song is a song is a song, and we play songs? Well, this isn't a song is a song is a song. There's there's lyrics in there that, that uh, were part of a hack, so it, it, uh, it had meaning to me, and... and I know, looking back at my my life growing up, um, you know, this all started when I was really young. My sister had a Ouija board, and not blaming the Ouija board or the manufacturers of Ouija board, but uh, it piqued my curiosity, and I had to know more. And um, <clears throat> I I got into some bad stuff, and and. Uh, you know, people look back and say, you know, Dave's had a really rough life. You know, he's had it really hard. And, and yeah, you know, there, 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 it has been some difficult periods, but a lot of it's been by my own doing. The only thing that I can say that has not been by my own doing that's, that's, um, been really bad has been uh, whatever's happened to me because of doing the black magic and and I don't look at that like something that happened to me I, I willingly uh, did what happened you know I was up in uh, Idaho and some kid that was twice my size walked past me and just punched me in the stomach and and just sucker punched me because so my my nephew had thought it was a good idea to tell everybody at this new school I went to that I was doing kung fu and that I was going to beat everybody up in the school or some dumbass move like that 
And uh, so this guy, you know, I was his target. And after he uh, slugged me, uh, I just figured, all right, you're going to do something uh, cowardly and do it behind my back. I'm going to get you. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it worked or not. I do know that after I, I did whatever I did was that, you know, there was a, uh, a period of darkness that kind of came over me, you know, things I thought about, things I talked about, things I wrote about my behavior. And, you know, it could be just a whole bucket of hogwash for all I know and not true or real at all, but you made a great song. Yeah, it turned out, it turned out, and it, it really was great. Um, at the beginning, you, you mentioned that you're very excited about a new album. Uh, talk to me about making new music, because a lot of older bands, yeah. whether you call them heritage acts or not, they put their name on the marquee, they play the 10 greatest hits, and they say, merci, bonsoir, we're done. You, on the other hand, along with Anthrax, I should say, keep making vital music, Dystopia being probably one of the best of your career, if that's correct to say um thanks talk to me about making new music why it's important to keep doing it and then of course with kiko in the band um how does that work i mean he's 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 really sort of brought a a renewal i guess or a freshness to to the canvas right i mean that's that's fair to say yeah i think so i think kiko's definitely brought uh some new elements to the band he's uh tremendous talent and uh He's got a great personality. He's handsome and and uh, very 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 uh, intelligent. Um, we have, um, you know, I I, I've, I I can tell you right now, I've not had a relationship with a guitar partner um, in this band or my previous ones that has been disenjoyable for me. You know, I, I find myself sometimes in the past when I would see other band members, you know, I'd be kind of like, oh, okay, hey, what's up. But literally every time I see Kiko, it's like, hey, hi, how are you? You know, he's always positive. He's always got something uh, good to say. He's always uplifting and considerate. And, and I just think, God, you know, you are such a star and you have so much talent. And yet you are so humble and such a beautiful person. And I'm so lucky to have, well, blessed, I should say, to have him and have you, Kiko, in my band. And I look forward to seeing what rubs off. And a lot has rubbed off on me. I, I, I'm not saying that I'm handsome. That or I, 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 That's too late for that, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. But hanging out with Kiko, it's like, you know, just learning nice nice things about, about life, and things that you take for granted, like, you know, a sunset again, or, or you know, the uh, a really nice meal, or just a really perfectly held note in a, in a song. Just, just things that we kind of just overlook, and it's been refreshing for me, kind of a renaissance for me in in a whole bunch of areas of my life. And and it keeps the, uh, it must keep the band uh, fresh for you too, because you know when you've played the same songs for thirty years, and then you come in with some guy who just offers just a, a slightly different texture. It's it it's got to keep it from becoming stale, and sort of goes ah okay that's interesting, right? I mean that's that, that that's what I think he brings to the band. Uh, yeah, it's considerably more than that. Right. I think that when you, when you have guys come in, you know, there's, there's guys that come in, they're utility players. We've had guys that have come in prior to, uh, this lineup. Of course. Um, 
guys that just came in to, to help us when we needed a helping hand to somebody was hurt or, you know, we, fortunately we haven't had a lot of those periods where we had to have someone come sit in with us because someone was hurt. We only had to do that one time with Jimmy DeGrasso for, uh, Nick Menza. But, uh, you know, it was, it was weird because you go from playing with Nick who, um, was a band member and, and we were all really close to playing with Jimmy who was not, and we were very distant and how, um, you know, Nick had, uh, started to get sick and, and, uh, um, he had something wrong with his leg. It was, it ended up from what he tells us that it was a, uh, tumor on his knee or a cyst. And he, uh, told us to two different things so i'm not exactly sure what went down with that but you know his he he was um starting to experience um difficulty playing i remember his hip had gone out in uh um scotland we were in scotland and and uh just popped right out of his pelvis and so when we got to fresno you know giant geographic jump right there and uh Jimmy DeGrasso was there to sit in for Nick because Nick had to go home. Um, and we heard those songs played for the first time with Jimmy. It was like, holy cow, these songs are are really exciting songs. You know, you, you kind of lose the plot when you're, you know, when you're um, kind of hashing through the, song you know it's just like uh you know you'd said something about 35 years and playing songs and getting the stairway to heaven syndrome and uh no i don't got that and and i I can tell you when it seemed like we uh discovered that that was going on um when um you know we had any kind of changes or lineup changes or or any kind of injuries or stuff like that it, it always reminded me Back to the song. Is the song a good song? Because that's all that matters at the end of the day. If it's a good song, it doesn't matter who plays it. It matters who sings it, but it doesn't matter who plays it. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Now, uh, back in the early days of the In the Killing is My Business and My Business is Good days, uh, Carrie King of Slayer played a few shows with you, of course, didn't join the mm-hmm. band. Uh, they yeah. are, of course, on their farewell tour. Just quickly talk to me um, what does it mean for them to leave the scene? Does it mean that the scene is sort of winding down? Does it give pause for you to say, hey, are we next? Are we down to our last five years? And what was it like sort of to have him in the band for those, whatever it was, five shows or, or six shows or whatever it was back in the beginning? Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm following the question. How was it to have Carrie in the band for those first five shows? Well, yeah, just 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 that, but also does the fact that they're leaving the scene and, you know, doing their farewell tour, does it give pause to you and Megadeth to say, you know, are, are we on our last five-year plan? Are we on our last seven-year, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, I, well, I certainly hope not. Um, there was a time uh, previously to uh, Kiko and Dirk being in the band where I was looking forward to, um, you know, um, taking off the saddle and putting the old feed bag on and, and just going out to pasture because it had gotten to the point where it was difficult. It was, it was hard. Uh, we had, um, 
people around the band, whether it was members or uh, significant others of members or, you know, the supporting staff or, you know, our crew or any of their families or, or any of that stuff. You know, when, when you're a big family like ours is and you get real close and you start having problems, it, it affects things. And the problem when you are a big family like this and um, you start to have problems, sometimes guys tend to um, lean on that instead of saying, you know what, this is my job. It's like, oh, well, hey, I'm sorry, I, I fucked up, I, I missed this part, I did that, you know, and, and uh, excuse me for swearing, I know we're... Uh, no, it's actually all good, that. actually. Um, so, so you know, when I when I look at where we're at right now, looking at you know Slayer winding down, looking at you know all this silly controversy that's going around right now about me, uh, who I'm saying is standing in the way or who's not standing in the way of the Big Four stuff, you know, it's just more um, you know sophomoric journalism trying to get uh, you know gossip out of me. I, I never said that um, Lars is standing in the way of a there being a big four show. Uh, oh, what I have said, and, and I stand by this, is that um, Slayer going away, uh, you know, they're choosing to go out on their terms, which is terrific. And I wish them the best. Uh, Carrie and I have uh, had a friendship uh, over the years, albeit on the outside it looks like we're not friends because of some stuff that he or I have said to each other over the years we're friends and um the same thing with uh with tom and dave and and uh jeff when he was with us and, and uh, with gary now you know it's it's we're friends um i hope that uh megadeth and sarah get to go one more round somewhere uh i think it would be great especially if it was a big four show but um, you know that that's entirely up to them. And if it doesn't happen, we've had our share of uh, Slayer Megadeth shows, and and uh, I will always uh, appreciate those times together. And one thing is for sure, I don't think that those guys are going to really, really go away. I think I think if it's uh, if it's possible. You know, we can look for uh, you know something, some some odd years down the road where, like with with the Molly Crew thing, people are saying you know they they uh, had to get the no more tours contract. We'll sue you if you have another tour kind of thing. I don't know that that's that's how it is with with uh, the guys in in Slayer. I hope not. I, I hope that I, you know, I hope there will be uh, more Slayer shows. I hope there'll be more Slayer Megadeth shows, and and just like everybody else, I hope there'll be more Slayer Megadeth, Metallica, and Anthrax shows. Yeah, I agree. And and as far as as Motley Crue goes, uh, they said no more tours. They never said no more shows. That that's the little little, little asterisk. And and as far as Lars, oh and, look at you, right? Touche. Well, hey, yeah, you know, uh, I pay attention to those details. Too. But also, you know, yeah. uh, in terms of the Lars thing, uh, you are right that it is sort of amateurish journalism in the sense that there's a lot more that goes into a big four tour than just the bands want to yeah. play. There's contracts yeah. and, and, and record companies and, and venue op. And it, it, it's it's not just Dave wants to play with Lars today. Let's make it happen. I mean, it, it you know, um, what a great tour, by the way. Um, and let me just finish with this. Since uh, these boots, these boots are made for walking. 
is uh, back on the Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, the final kill. Uh, just talk to me about the original decision to put that song on there. You're you're out of Metallica. You want to sort of prove to the world that that you're it, and you sort of did this. And we know it's it's um, a Lee song, but but it was more made famous by Nancy Sinatra, a very camp version. Talk to me about that decision about taking sort of this cutesy song and and putting it on the debut album. Well, when I was a little kid, I'd gone to Kachuma Lake up in uh, Northern California, and my family was out there camping. And I can remember clear as day, my mom had a Ford Fairlane, both doors were open, and the stereo was, well, the stereo, the AM radio was on. And um, and I thought, well, this is a, a cool song in whatever vernacular a little kid you know, speaks at that point. And at some time later, when Megadeth had been formed, we had a guy that was our manager, um, uh, parentheses, question mark, parentheses, uh, drug dealer, uh, parentheses, uh, parentheses, whatever, um, a guy that used to hang out with us and bring pot by and stuff and ended up introducing us to Gar Samuelson and then ended up introducing us to Chris Poland and, and, um, ended up dying in a fight with his brother over a bologna sandwich. So um, that was really bizarre. Um, how did I even get on that tangent? Oh, my God. Why did I go there? Well, because we're talking about how you discovered or heard these boots are made for walking on AM radio. No, I was just, I was oh. just trying to think, how on earth did I go there? That was just, I'm, I'm shaking my head, sorry. So anyways, <laughs> we had this the manager, uh, this guy, Jay Jones, and he said, you know what, you guys need to do, uh, I ain't superstitious. And I said, that's a great song. And then and he goes, yeah, but, you know, let's, uh, let's do these boots are made for walking. And so I went, okay, that's great. Because, uh, you know, to me, boots seemed like the, the one that... It was the right one for the first record, but I didn't like the lyrics. I thought they were kind of, you know, campy, like you said. So I made them a little bit more metal. And since I was homeless at the time and sleeping around to, you know, feed myself, um, I made it pretty trashy and raunchy. Yeah. So record comes out. People like it. Ten years later, I get a letter from Lee Hazelwood's estate, and they're saying, uh, you have made this a vile and offensive song. And what I said was what's vile and offensive is that you guys cashed the check for 10 years before you came out and took a pot shot at me saying I made the song vile and offensive. I made the song great. And um, I thought that it was pretty shitty. So I took the song off the record and uh, I beeped out all my words and put it back on there. And the funny thing is Willie Dixon... Um, God rest his soul, he had uh, said when he heard Ain't Superstitious, he goes, man, I like what they did to it. And I was thinking, you know what, there, there is somebody who is a musician, and these people from the Lee Hazelwood estate are people who are suits. Yeah, you're right. And now you recut the vocals for, for this version. Was this recut like in 2018 or like 10 years ago and you just decided to use them? No, they, they were recent. They okay. were recent. When we went back in to do this, um, the whole the whole premise of doing this record was to try and get everything back to its most organic form as possible, and that meant we went in and we scrubbed and searched for everything. We found things where the technology had 
glitched when we were working on stuff. There were tracks that were out of phase with one another. As soon as you put it into any kind of uh, modern outboard gear, you're able to see where the frequency map looked like there was a stampede of, of wild animals through a front room with white carpeting. <laughs> and we uh, found a couple of bits and pieces that were never even used, some killer Garfields. And, you know, Gar, one of the things that made Megadeth so dangerous in the beginning was the fact that Chris Poland and Gar Samuelson were such great musicians and, and came from such a weird background with the jazz and the uh, certain elements that go along with that. You know, people... You know, and I, I know we've probably, you've probably seen this already, but, you know, people... They say, you know, hey, these guys were, you know, they they acted like bad guys. You know, they oh, they were they they, they these guys act like they're bad. You know, we we were bad. We were very dangerous, bad people. And um, when we uh, not not like we were untrustworthy, but we were just really dangerous. You know, I was in a limousine with Chris Bolin, and we had two cars for the PCLs, but it was buying release, and and uh, my. Uh, girlfriend at the time and and uh, david ellison's and uh chris and gars all took off in one car someplace and somebody said something and chris lunged at me in the backseat of the car and i kicked him in the face and and i uh i don't know why i did that what what guy does that <laughs> and uh, you know i i said i was sorry to him right after that we all four of us were laughing and joking on the way down to you know we ditched the place where the record release party was at the barfly or the Firefly, whatever it's called. And next thing you know, we're off uh, on our way down to where we like to hang out and party, and and uh, it didn't even matter anymore. That's that's how crazy we were. Good old uh, the good old days, uh, Dave. A great pleasure, and I would love to go on more, but I actually have to phone Uli in about four minutes. Yeah, but, uh, please tell him I said hello. I will absolutely do that. He's he's just a wonderful chat, and and thank you for for today, and thank you for the music over the years. I have oh, seen. Yeah. Megadeth, I don't know how many times, 12 or 13, 14 times now, and it's just always been spectacular. Every Thanks. lineup, actually. Uh, but the the new lineup with Kiko, particularly, is just fucking slamming. Slamming. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you uh, get to appreciate Dirk as much. His uh, yeah. work he's doing right now on the new music. We've been putting new music up in my Dropbox, and uh, the stuff that Dirk's been playing along to it is, is scary. Uh, we've never had any of those blast beat kind of things on our music before, and and some of the drumming on this is so mind blowing. It's it's making me a, a better guitar player again, which I, I love. But uh, I never th- I thought we were going to be playing this fast or this aggressive again. Uh, I look for it. So when does that come out? Just well, I'll end on that. When 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 is sort of the timeline on it? Are we looking like at March 2019 or? Or later this year? We're, we're, we're hoping April of next year. We've got a huge festival that we're going to be announcing. Um, and and uh, I'll have management tell you everything as soon as possible. Um, it's really a big deal. It's kind of the equivalent of uh, Gigantor, but it's a much fresher idea. And um, we've uh, got that set up in, in about 10 cities in April. And then we're going to do it again uh, for a three-day weekend in uh, um the middle of the year, and then we're going to do uh, 
probably about another 10 of those dates at the uh, latter part of the year. And, you know, we've got um, a bunch of other really fantastic things that I wish I could tell you. You know, we've got a cruise, a, a, like a murder whodunit kind of boot camp wow. thing we're going to be doing over in Europe. And, and Pledge is going to be in the studio with us again and blah, 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 blah. Oh, it's, so, it's great. It's, great, it's a great day to be a Megadeth fan. Yeah, and it's a great day just to be a rock fan. It's just nice to know that this is not ending and you're not just calling it in with some greatest hits package. Let me play you 12 songs and take your money and go home. That's, it's, you know, thank you. No. For the fans, yes, I say thank you're you. You're welcome. And uh, you're we'll welcome. see you hopefully in Montreal very soon. Cool, buddy. Take care. Thank you, Dave. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Very big thank you to uh, Megadeth frontman Dave Mustaine. Of course, the new re-released album is Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, The Final Kill. Uh, welcome back, Mr. Steve Brown. Uh, I know you had some more Def Leppard story to tell us, but we will get to that after. In terms of Megadeth, uh, Steve, I'm assuming Trickster never opened for Megadeth, but do you have any, right? Yeah, well, yeah, you're definitely uh, assuming <laughs> right on. Unless, unless we did some sort of like heaven and hell tour, you know, where it was he had the, you know, the poppy metal band trickster playing with the, you know, the the the, the heavy heavy metal band Megadeth. No, we never we never did never shows did. together. But but did you ever have a chance to to meet him or run into him or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, actually, and and a great story was we were doing recording the first Trickster album in uh, California, and we were living out there. I think it was probably September, October of uh, 1989, and um, PJ and I and our manager, we were like Metallica's playing at Irvine Meadows in California. Let's let's go, and uh, so we went out there. And you know, a quick story is. Back back in the day, and this ties into Def Leppard, how I got to become friends with Def Leppard was their Metallica's manager and Def Leppard at the time, their manager, Peter Minch, was the guy who helped Trickster get their record deal. He was really good friends with our managers and he really liked us. He saw Trickster as a you know, as a new kind of Def Leppard, young kids. You know, as you remember, Def Leppard got signed and, you know, Rick Allen was sixteen and, you know, much like PJ and myself, we were the younger guys in the band. So so that was it. So we were doing the first Trickster record and we drove out to Irvine Meadows, you know, on the Injustice for All tour, I believe Metallica was on and and uh, we were hanging backstage and, you know, lo and behold, there's Dave Mustaine, which was, you know, kind of kind of cool. I mean, I, I didn't really know much about Megadeth besides stuff that was on MTV, but yeah, he was cool. Nice guy. And, you know, just, uh, you know, hung with him. You know, and, and uh, well, I'm just going to say, I don't mean to cut you off, but here's what I'm going to say about that story is that if you look historically in the press back in 89, there was this perception that Metallica and Megadeth or Dave and Lars and all were having these huge fights and they hated each other. And here they are hanging backstage at a show. And I don't think the public was privy to that. So it's kind of cool to know that, you know, what, what we sometimes see out out front is not necessarily the reality in the back. Well, as we know, everybody needs a good story. So those are good. And I still believe that the Metallica, Dave Mustaine, uh, stuff that you see in the press all the time is, um, 
I think they kind of they do it to each other, and it's good. It's good. It's good for business. Let's just say. Let's just say that. Yeah. No, I agree. Now, so, uh, talking about business, Sebastian Bach is on the yeah. Home Away from Home tour, and his band, of course, has Brent Woods, who was with. Um, Vince Neil for a long time, and the band is just is just kicking. I mean, you and I oh, both yeah. got to see them at M3, and that was just a phenomenal set. Just great, great stuff. But you you know Skid Row from way, 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 way back in the day, even before Sebastian mm-hmm. there, back in the Matt Fallon days, right? Remember, yeah. that? Remember that guy, folks, Matt Fallon? Um, talk to me a little bit about those early days and, and John Bon Jovi and Dave and... and just what it was like before they became, you know, the Skid Row that we all know and love. Yeah, I mean, what a what a what a thing to be a part of and witness, and uh, you know. So, what what happened was John Bon Jovi when Trickster started really started getting in on our groove in like 1986. Um, we were playing like all, the, all these all ages clubs and we were starting to get some steam going. And so we recorded our first demo, which was, uh, you know, really rough, but, um, we went, uh, before slippery when wet was released in, I believe August or September of, uh, 1986, John Bon Jovi was doing some radio thing, uh, at the, at the hard rock cafe, I believe in the city and, and Gus and Pete, um, they they went over and they gave him a press kit, and a couple days later we get a phone call on our Trickster hotline, John Bon Jovi, and he just called and said, you know, hey man, I listen to your tape. I think you guys are great. You have a lot of potential, and and that was like wow. That was that was our first you know kind of uh, again validation and our first rock star going. Hey, these guys are cool, and and we kind of that was when we looked at each other and said, you know what, we can really do this. You know, someone like that believes. And uh, and then a couple months later, Bon Jovi and Cinderella played at the Meadowlands Arena on New Year's Eve. Um, and we were there and we were backstage. We actually snuck backstage like we always used to do uh, because we knew all the security guys. Everybody was, you know, everybody was fans of Trickster, you know, the hometown guys. So we were backstage and we got to see John you know, after the show, and he goes, hey, man, I want to introduce you, you know, to my buddies, Skid Row, and it was Snake, Scotty, and Rachel, and I think Rob at the time, Rob Afuso, and uh, we just hit it off, and, and lo and behold, we had a gig booked in, uh, like, the, you know, a couple weeks, we were playing in Staten Island, New York, with Skid Row, so John told Snake right there, he goes, hey, man, make sure these guys get a sound check, take care of them. And that was the beginning of our friendship, you know, Snake and Rachel and Scotty and Rob and 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 they, they and they did. They took care of us. We got a sound check and and we became friends. And to be able to witness the whole Skid Row thing, so this was pre pre Sebastian, and uh, and and then you know watching it and going down to Snake's house, his mom's house, and sitting there listening to you know listening to the demos, and then the demos turned into you know the pre production of the first album. And, uh, you know, and then Trickster in 19, I believe it was 88, right when Skid Row, right before they got signed, we did the first shows that Sebastian ever did in the States with them at this place called Studio One when Sebastian joined the band. And I remember meeting him for the first time and just, you know, meeting him backstage and Jason Flom from Atlantic Records was there and and Scott McGee and, you know, it was just really, really heavy. And we're at this, you know, this dumpy rock club. 
and Baz goes to me, he goes, he goes, yeah, man, he goes, yeah, I hear you're 17, you know, and you're really, you know, Snake says you're great, you know, and blah, 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 and it was just really cool as he's, like, primping his, you know, sticking up his hair, and uh, and they got up on stage, and I remember, like, I, I guess me and PJ were standing there, and I just said, these guys are going to be the biggest band, you know, within a year, and sure enough, they were, you know, yeah. the, so to witness all of that, the metamorphosis, and, you know, and, and especially seeing what happens and this happens you know when you have that uh you know that one element of any band that's missing when you get the right guy and especially when it's a singer you know you you know it immediately and it was it was so blatantly obvious and most of those songs were already written so their set was already you know uh, uh, full of hits and they just crushed it. So it was incredible to see. And then, you know, we all know what happened. You know, a couple months later, they were, you know, on MTV and out on tour with Bon Jovi on the New Jersey tour. And uh, what, 13 million records later. Yeah. And that's really what I, that was the point I was going to get to is the voice because the songs were there, but the voice made them Skid Row. The voice made Sebastian's voice took them from. And I, and I don't mean this in any kind of disparaging way, but it took him from triple A ball to major league ball. I mean, that's... Oh, without yeah, the voice, everything that Sebastian brought to that band, it took them to, you knew that these guys were going to be an arena headliner, you know, though they opened for Bon Jovi, those guys were the, that was a superstar band and that, a band that was going to be <clears throat> real and, you know, and, and look at the history though. They're not together now. Skid Row is still out there, you know, playing and then, you know, doing very well as is Sebastian. And there was no denying it and especially seeing it. You know, like I said, I've seen I've seen numerous bands like that where you see it in a club and you just go, these guys are going to these guys are going to make it. You know, another yeah. band that I saw in a, in a similar situation in the 90s was Puddle of Mud. And it was this was before their first album came out. And we all know what happened afterwards. You know, we don't need to go into that. But seeing right. that band, I saw them do a, um, a record company thing. And this was before the record came out at CBGB, the legendary CBGB in Manhattan. And watching those guys play those songs in front of 40 people, you know, from that first Puddle of Mud record, again, of course, I was with PJ, and I, we, I hit him on the shoulder. I said, these guys are going to be huge. And again, they were huge. So it's, you know, it's always a cool thing to see it. And, you know, and but the Skid Row thing, you know, I was kind of a part of because I was friends with all those guys so, so much. So to be there with them, you know, when they when they opened for Bon Jovi at the Meadowlands Arena or at Nassau Coliseum and be backstage and celebrating with them, you know, made it that much more special. And uh, we're all friends, friends to this day, and that's the most important thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the one thing that uh, Sebastian and I talk about, uh, among among others, is in June of 1991, the album Slave to the Grind came out. So we talk about that. Um, oh, yeah. As as a fan yourself, when that came out, because they were sort of projected with the first album and the Bon Jovi tour as these pretty boys, sort of pop rocky thing. That was sort of the, the MTV image. But when Slave to the Grind came out, it was like, no, 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 no. We're not pretty boy pinups. We are a hard rock metal band. Um, what was your reaction to that first album or that second album, Slave to the Grunt? Because it sort of kicked me right between the teeth. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was, um, and again, you know, being a part of it, you know, I, I kind of know what the, why the reason they went there. Um, I, I, it was for me, you know, for me, it was one of those things to where they were, they, 
that's their true, I think their true essence, you know, that I think the first record was, I, don't, I mean, I love the first album. I think the first album was, you know, just had incredible songs, but I think Slave to the Grind was truer to what those guys were and what they wanted to be. You know, I think they would rather, I think that the attitude was we'd rather go out and sell a million records every time instead of trying to come up with hits and, you know, and try to be, you know, kind of a hit band. They wanted to be a career band. And, and I think, you know, the next record showed that as well, I guess, but I love Slave to Grind. It took a little, you know, getting used to, but you know, it had all the elements kind of, you know, just a dark, I think it's a darker version of, you know, then this, the, the first record was a lot lighter, more of a party record. I think the second record showed, yeah, of course, showed a band that was on the road for 13 months on that first tour. And then also showed a band that was, there, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of wounds there with those guys, you know, because that's what happens, you know, and the thing with Sebastian was those guys, they didn't know him that well. So a lot of things happened on that first tour and uh, with any band, you know, when you're out on the road with your band for a long time, and I learned this with the trickster guys, you know, when you're out on the road for 13 months, you learn a lot about people, a lot of things you never knew before. And I think that comes out in the writing on, this, on, the, on the Slave to the Grind record with Skid Row. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, some of Rachel's lyrics and, you know, the, the, the chord progressions, Snake and Rachel wrote some incredible, incredible songs. I mean, I love Quicksand Jesus is one of my favorite songs. And in, in, in a darkened room, you know, incredible. Yeah, what what a great song. So instead of us talking about it, let's hear uh, Sebastian himself talk about that album, and of course a lot more. And his tour, Home Away from Home, it is coming up to uh, Montreal on July second. So here, without further ado, is the one, the only, the voice of a generation, Sebastian Bach. <laughs> we are speaking with vocalist Sebastian Bach. He is currently. On the road, uh, Sebastian, pleasure to talk to you. Good talking to you, Mitch. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since you and I have, have done an interview, and I'm glad that we're, we're doing one today. Right on. Sounds good. In fact, uh, I just wanted to say one thing. I saw you at the M3 Festival in May, and it was spectacular. And first of all, the entire festival was spectacular, but you and your band, holy shit. Wow. Well, you know, I, I'm happy to I'm happy to say that I've had the same band now for like ten years. Like I've had, except for Brent uh, guitar, he's been there like six or seven years. Um, but but Bobby on the drums, I got him. You know, I I can't remember what year exactly it was, uh, but it was maybe 2004 or something like that. And so, you know, um, some bands that, you know, we all know about, it's like a revolving door of musicians. And it's like, like, who's it going to be today? But my band, you know, it's me and Bobby on him on the drums from Halford's band and, here we go. We're about to do another hundred cities uh, this year together. So we're very tight. We're we're a fucking tight band. And and Bobby on the drums absolutely crushes the drums. I mean, <laughs> if you want to hear 
monkey business. Like, let Bobby fucking play it for you. He, he will crush that shit. <laughs> I mean, if you like the Halford Resurrection album, that's who's on the drums in my band. And uh, I'm certainly a fan of the Halford Resurrection album. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the Halford Resurrection album is the best non-Judas Priest album that they ever made. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it yeah, really I'd is. say so. Yeah, really Although is. last night we were listening to live Insurrection on the tour bus and uh, Bobby's performance of Metal Gods on live Insurrection. Halford does some stuff at the end of that. That is, I think, my favorite version of that song. So and also. If you're getting really into it, the song Heart of a Lion, um, which was yeah. an old Racer X tune, and then Halford did it with Bobby on the drums, and we were listening to that last night, and that is a stellar track right there. Halford's voice in Heart of a Lion is one of my favorite songs he's ever done. Yeah, I agree. And there, there's a version yeah. on, uh, I think it was a Japanese bonus track or the remaster, where he does Blackout with Rudolph Schenker on that live insurrection. Which is cute. Wow, that's I cool. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's it's fantastic. So I would love to hear it. Hang on one sec. Yeah. They do have a Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get coffee, dude. I know. I, I, I've got mine next to me. So right so on. so moving on from um, uh, M3. It is June 11th that we're doing this interview, and of course, 27 years ago, Slave to the Grind came out. That album has not gotten old. And, of course, the way you're performing the songs at M3 and stuff. Uh, just quickly talk to me about that album and what it meant for you and for the band. Because it really was this, you know, you had I Remember You and 18 in Life and all that. And the album, other album, very much MTV fair. But this one was a heavy metal album. And it was just great. Yeah. I mean, everything you said is is awesome. But I can't I can't answer when, if you want to talk to me about Slave to the Grind, I can't get past the fact that it's not available on vinyl <laughs> anywhere. And it's the first hard rock, heavy metal album to ever debut at number one in the Billboard chart. Sorry, Pantera. Okay? Right. I'm sick and tired of reading that shit. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we were before you, and that's history. So there you go, and that's a fact. And I'm a vinyl collector, like one of the most passionate collectors of vinyl that you'll ever meet. And I always go into the record store looking for records, and I'm in the best mood for an hour in the store while I'm looking for Van Halen or Rush or Kiss. And then I get to the Skid Row Sebastian Bach section, and there's nothing. <laughs> like, nothing. Go try to find Slave to the Grind on vinyl. Go try. I guarantee you, it's impossible to find. It doesn't exist. So it's not a happy subject for me. It's It pisses me off. It makes me angry. It's like... I can go get a 5.1 surround mix of every Rush record there is, Fly By Night through Signals, fucking 180 gram deluxe packaging with unreleased demos and videos and Blu-rays and everything you could want as a fan. And we don't, we don't, our band just doesn't acknowledge 
the vinyl resurgence. So it's like, what? Oh, what? There's a vinyl resurgence? What? Like every other band gives back to the fans, and, and it, it really hurts me. But when you ask me, let's talk about Slade the Grind, well, there's nothing to talk about. Like, go, you can go download an MP3, like, yippee-i-yay, like, who gives a shit? I mean, we should be giving back to guys like you that like the album. You should be able to go get a deluxe version of it that 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 Rush gives to their fans and Kiss gives to their fans. All I want to do is... is I, I don't even have the fucking thing on vinyl. I have one version from Korea. Like, that's the only version I have. And it's like all beat up and shit. You know, like, think how stupid that is. It's It's beyond... Stupid. So, so I mean, I, I agree with people, that. people, people know my personality. Sometimes I get pissed off, and it really pisses me off that you cannot get "Slave to the Grind" on vinyl. It, it makes me crazy. It, it doesn't make sense. It's, 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 it's sad for fuck's sakes. Like at the end of the day, it's fucking sad. It's, it's, it's not right. Hopefully, someday. We'll we'll get it together for you guys and and put it out so you can listen to it. Well, hopefully, cause, <laughs> right? Because there is a thirtieth anniversary coming up, so hopefully then. Yeah, but I, I mean that's the last contact I had with the band Skid Row. I I texted them all on a group text. Hey, uh, January is our thirtieth anniversary of our first record. That was three months ago. I got one text back from Rob, and I haven't heard nothing from any of the other guys. So I don't know what what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what words I have to say or. or <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You'd have to talk to them why they don't want to give. Like I feel a sense of guilt. I mean, we all still get royalty checks, right? So. I feel a sense of guilt every time I get a royalty check that I'm not giving back. Like I get this check, but I'm not putting the fucking album out. Like, I'm like, like, like it doesn't, it, it's not logical to me. Like, uh, as a fan of, uh, of rock and roll and collecting records, it just really hurts me that you, you can't get, uh, slave to the grind. You can't get subhuman race. You, you can get, the first Skid Row album that somebody put out without any of the credits, without any of the thank yous, without any lyrics, like who the fuck, like without any effort, like nobody asked me about it, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I'm the guy that has the whole archives. I have all the original tapes of those say, can you scream roadkill? I have, I shot those. I have, when you see clips of Osaka and you scream, that's like a 30 second thing on a two hour tape. I have all the fucking tapes. I have all, they're in my house, just in a box, just collecting dust. So when you hear the uh, annoyance in my voice, I'm like, does anybody want this? Like, I know the fans do, but I can't do anything with it. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> It's, I have a version of Quicksand Jesus that we shot a video. There's only one copy in the world. I have it because 
we made a video of it and nobody liked it and and we hated it we thought it sucked and everybody got mad and we had this meeting we said we're not putting this out and after the meeting i walked up to the vcr and i took the video and i have it nobody's ever fucking seen it it's a perfect it's a, 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 a video and then we went and shot a second version i don't understand why we can't put out a slave to the grind record with a blu-ray with that on it like what Here, just have it like it's fucking collecting dust in my closet <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's, it's very frustrating i don't i don't get it i really don't i agree because i'm i'm staring right in front of me at the uh, def leopard cd collection one and i've got the pre-order on the guns and roses locked and loaded. Well, every band does right. it right? like like we're the only band that doesn't do it well, hopefully, hopefully that'll change soon, and, and yeah. we can get it. Now, I know you had, or it, it was reported that you were building a studio and a drum recording studio on your property in Southern California. Has that been completed? And where does that? It's not really a drum. It's not really a drum studio. The thing is, when I was making those videos, I was on Twitter, and somebody tweeted, um, "Oh, I can't believe Hollywood treats." YouTubers so much worse than than uh, actors. <laughs> I tweeted, "What is a YouTuber? Like, I don't know what that is." <laughs> Everybody explained to me, "Oh well, there are these dudes that like film their lives and, and people watch it on YouTube." And I go, "Well, I have a fucking more interesting life than those guys." <laughs> so, so I'm just like, you know, the the little kid in me likes the fact that I can make something that's like literally 45 minutes long and like good quality video and just upload it instead of, you know, a crappy cell phone, uh, video. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm more focusing on, uh, making my new record than, than, than that video thing, but it's just kind of a fun thing to do. And, um, I'm trying to get another episode out here on the road with all the drama. So uh, look for that pretty soon. <laughs> so, so, so talk to me about then the, uh, the, the next new album, because it's been a couple of years since the last one. When do you see that coming out? And do you go back to a sort of a metal slave to the grind kind of sound, or do you just keep moving forward? Where do we go? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that there's very exciting developments on the record label situation for me. And, and I can't tell you what it is yet, but there's really cool things happening. Um, so it looks like this next record I'm going to do, I'm going to get a better shot than I ever got, which is awesome. And, and so I can't tell you any, any idea of when it's coming out because, you know, like the last records I did give them hell kicking and screaming, Angel Down, um, they're, I, to me, they're all just as good as Slave to the Grind, especially Angel Down has a production value that fucking crushes anything I've ever recorded. Every time I warm up uh, to go on tour and any song from that record comes on the playlist, it's like I have to look at the settings on the stereo. It's like, why <laughs> Why does this sound so incredible? Like, it's unbelievable. Um, because I think it's because we recorded at Sound City, the studio where Dave Grohl 
um, you know, made that movie about the famous analog studio. That's where we recorded Angel Down, and uh, I, I can hear it. I can hear that um, the difference. Um, but what happened recently, like in my last couple tours, um, I was writing my book. And that got me really nostalgic for the Skid Row days when I was writing the stories of 1988 and 87 and 89 and all that. So that got me thinking about those songs, those old Skid Row songs. So I ended up adding a lot of those to my set. Um, but, you know, when you when you go on the road and you do a set, you, you if you do it too many times, you know, you're like wanting to change it again. So I kind of, now I'm more getting back into my solo songs. <laughs> Cause I did, I did that in the last couple of tours and now I'm realizing there, there's some really great songs on there that I might've overlooked. Um, there's a tune on there, dance on your grave. That is just fucking brutal. When I, when I hear that and, uh, that's, that's in the set now and it's, it's really heavy tune. People are really digging it. Yeah. You know, another tune that I'd like to see you put back cause, cause I'm going to be seeing you in Montreal very soon is mm -hmm. the April wine rock and roll is a vicious game because miles actually lives like 10 minutes from me. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. One other, another tune I'd love to do by April Wine is I like to rock. Because <laughs> that tune is so... You might, you might be surprised at that one because it's <laughs> one of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite songs. There's something about that that is badass and, and I might have to fucking fire that one up because I like to rock. Yeah. <laughs> I like to rock roller. We, I, I, in fact, I'm staring at Miles's phone number here. We should, we should call him and have him come out to the Montreal show. That would be a hoot. I've never, I've never met Miles, Miles Goodwin, and I, and I never heard if he even knows that his songs on my record. Like he, he gets paid for it. So I hope, he, I hope he's getting the checks. I, I hope so too. <laughs> uh, by the way, that's one thing I've always appreciated about you is you've always worn. Your heroes on your sleeve, in a sense. You're you're not afraid to, to talk about Rush, to talk about April Wine, to talk about Kiss. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me about those early influences, because I think you and I share. I think we share the same thing that our first shows were a Kiss Dynasty show, right? Is is, is that correct? My first show that I ever went to, my mom and dad brought me in a bread basket to see Mark Bowen and T-Rex when I was a baby in Florida. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> My mom told me that. I was like, you guys are crazy. Like, <laughs> she goes, yeah, we, we didn't have a babysitter, so we put you in a bread basket and brought you to the show. I was like, wow, okay. So I don't know if that counts. But then when I was like eight or nine, I went to see the Stampeders with my babysitter at PCVS High School in Peterborough. They had that hit song, Jet Ooh, Sweet City Woman. Yeah, that was my first show. Wow. <clears throat> then, then I, then I saw Kiss '79, but I also saw around that time, right after that, Joan Jet at the Memorial Center in Peterborough and a triumph I saw at the Memorial Center. Um, but yeah, Kiss was the, the first big, huge one. And I write about that uh, in my book quite, quite, quite detailed. Yeah. It, quite, it's such quite, a, 
sort of such as a great memory those bands now uh mm-hmm. one of the last times other than m3 where you know way going year way way back was in broadway i saw you on jekyll and, doing yeah. jekyll and hyde and the rocky horror picture show mm-hmm. uh you haven't done any broadway of course since then uh, just quickly talk to me about those experiences and is that something that you would like to do again and get into a lot more acting and get into <clears throat> a lot more broadway and and just do something different with the career well, it's all the, the the thing about Broadway that I learned that that that's you know kind of probably true about rock bands is is that it's each role is very different. Like Jekyll and Hyde was a lot different to play than Jesus Christ Superstar. It was a different, totally different feel, and um, playing Jesus was pretty uh, rough. <laughs> That's a tough role to play. Um, but playing Jekyll and Hyde was probably the most fun that I ever had on stage um, because I'm such a Marvel Comics fan that one of my comics that I bought when I was a kid was uh, Marvel Classics Comics, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, issue number one. And uh, so I was playing, to me, I was playing a Marvel comic role in my head. <laughs> but... Uh, so that was really fun, and I would love to do more of that. I I almost did a couple of other plays, but they just didn't work out for 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 one re- reason or the other. I, they wanted me to be the dream catcher in uh, what the fuck was that? I can't remember the name of it. Um, Neither can I. But but but, but, but it was only like a, like a thirty second thing, and I and I was like, I can't get into it. Then. I, they wanted me to be um, what the fuck, man of La Mancha, okay? <laughs> okay. So, so when you say, "Would you like to do more Broadway?" Like I go, well, I, maybe, but then they, then I watch. They go, "Okay, man of La Mancha," and I watch the movie. I go, "This is the worst fucking movie I've ever seen." <laughs> <laughs> to dream the impossible dream. I go, no, dude. I I. I can't. I gotta. I gotta draw the line like somewhere. <laughs> I think this is it. <laughs> that might be it. Right. Draw yeah, the I line. Could, I, could, I just couldn't. I couldn't get into that, dude. I, I mean. I mean. It's about the role. I really like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. That that is badass. But Man of La Mancha, maybe not so much. <laughs> I mean, Rock of Ages could have worked for you, but that, but that. I was the first guy that they ever asked to play the the main character in that. When it was off Broadway, they they fucking begged me, called my house before it was ever going. They they were like, Sebastian, we wrote this part for you, the one that Dee Snyder played. But that part was originated for me. And I didn't like it, like, at all. I think Rock of Ages sucks. I think it's fucking a horrible movie. Like, it's nothing rocks at all about that movie. Um, I, I think Get Get Him to the Greek is so much more accurate of what rock and roll is. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great movie. Like get him get him to the Greek with Russell Brand and, and uh doing ecstasy, licking the carpet. That's fucking rock and roll. Missing your plane flight and puking and ending up in an orgy. That that's rock. <laughs> that movie is 
far more accurate as to what goes on in a in a band than Rock of Ages. Rock is. of Ages, yeah. Now, uh, I, I, I do want to go back to the Angel Down album. It came out in two thousand seven. And on there, you've got three songs with Axl Rose. Back in the Saddle, yeah. Love is a Bitch Slap, Stuck Inside. And at that time, getting Axl Rose anywhere was like, whoa, how did he manage that? <laughs> right? I mean, it, yeah. No, yeah, it freaked me out too. And that's another sore spot that that record has never, ever, ever been pressed onto vinyl. And it's a fucking disgrace and I'm doing everything I can to change that situation because that record should be on vinyl. It does not, not anywhere in the world is it on vinyl. So, but that's another project for me. But, um, yeah, I just saw Axel again when they're, they finished at the forum like two months ago or something. And, I got to uh, hang out that night with Lisa Marie Presley, which, you know, uh, to a kid from Peterborough is fucking crazy. I mean, <laughs> it's just, she's like my new friend. She's really cool. She And I met her at the gun show and she's ended up being really close to my wife and me. And um, Axel is killing it. I mean, it's, it's insane that, that he's in, not just Guns N' Roses, but ACDC. I mean, like, it's fucking nuts. <laughs> it is. You know, when, when they announced the ACDC thing, uh, thing, I was like, yeah, that's going to be great. Cause I, ACDC couldn't just go get some schmo off of a YouTube video. They had to get a name, and that was the name. When you first heard about that, what was your reaction? Were you like, uh-oh, or were you like, yeah, they got the right guy? Well, I was jealous that I didn't get a chance because I can right. fucking sing ACDC pretty fucking good too, and I'm not just saying that. No, no, you've covered. <laughs> you know, I can sing. I can sing Journey pretty good too, and and we did. We played San Francisco last night, and, and we did Lights Go Down in the City, and um, um. So first, I was like, "Fuck, man!" I was jealous. <laughs> But then, of course, I, I I understand obviously why he would get the gig because people don't know how to sing anymore. They don't. It's like a dying art. There's no. There's no. Maybe I maybe I haven't heard any, but you know, like where's where's like the new Jeff Buckley or where's the new Steve Tyler or okay Greta Van Fleet. There's the new Robert Plant. That's for sure right there. But. Um, it, there's like a lack of original sounding yeah. heavy metal vocalists that unless I'm not hearing any like you know but I don't I don't know to me when we were all starting out uh in the 80s we we all knew that we had to have our own sound like like that was the goal of every musician back then, because there was no such thing as pro tools or computers. Like I had to find my own vocal sound of Sebastian Bach. And, and I was even working on that. You know, even when I first got in skid row, John Bon Jovi said, Sebastian, sometimes you sound like Vince Neil. Sometimes you sound like Dio. Sometimes you sound like, uh, Halford. Sometimes you sound like Neil Diamond. <laughs> 
you have to find your sound. And it freaked me out. I was like, fuck, I have to do this like right now. Like <laughs> I have to find like, what is the Sebastian Bach vocal sound? And, and I, you know, making the first Skid Row record, my two favorite singers were Rob Halford and Steve Perry. And if you listen to 18 in life, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty good, uh, you can hear the influence. Like you can hear, I remember you is influenced by journey with the vocals. I don't know. I can hear it. Maybe you can't, but I, I can hear it. <laughs> I, I, I could now. So, okay. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Cause that's interesting. Is that something then that you had to work at where you had to sit in a booth and record five versions of 18 in life and say, okay, this one is Steve Perry. This one's wrong. I need the, like, no, I just, I just had to find my own sound. And, and the thing, the diff, a big difference about, now and then is back then in Skid Row and even before that in Kid Wicked in Toronto, we rehearsed like every fucking day. And we didn't we didn't organize rehearsal. We just had a rehearsal room and we would all show up there like after work or whatever, you know, when we could and we would all be there every single day. For for Kid Wicked it was Say four rehearsal studios up near Jane and Finch and Anvil uh, rehearsed across the way. And, and, you know, there was a big rehearsal thing and that's just the way being in a band was back then. Um, Skid Row, when I moved to, to New Jersey, we practiced in Rachel's garage every day without, without question and without talking about it. That's just what we did. And I love the musicians I play with now, but <laughs> I mean, trying to get rehearsals going is like, you know, it's a different thing in 2018. It's like everybody wants to get paid to rehearse and everybody's in five different bands. You know what I mean? Like, like Bobby's in fate's warning and uh, Arch Mateos and <laughs> Brent's in three dog night for fuck's sakes. <laughs> and Grand Funk Railroad. I'm not. I'm not making it up. He plays at those bands, like on cruise ships and stuff. So all my musicians are very busy. But what that means is that we don't get to rehearse like like I used to rehearse in in uh, in Skid Row and, and Kid Wicked. So that I think that's how guys like me, Axel, Vince Neil. Uh, bon Jovi. <clears throat> That's how we found our sound by rehearsing and always playing. You know, now nowadays when when vocalists go to record, you can do like a half-assed bullshit take, and it doesn't matter. They go and they arrange it on the screen and on Pro Tools, so it sounds like it's a good take. But it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not a good take. <laughs> it's like a pastiche. Of a good take. Do you know what I mean? Like it, when we were making Slade to the Grind, those were really good takes. Like, <laughs> that's yeah, we, all I can tell you. We, we, it, it's a lost art. And I listen to my daughter's stuff and she's 14. And I, that drum machine sound of those of those songs, it just drives me crazy. We, we, we need to get back to old school rock and roll. And by the way, since you did Lights in San Francisco and sort of did, yeah. maybe when you get to Montreal, you, you can give us a, a I Like to Rock by April Wine. <laughs> do a song for City, you know? I'm thinking I'm, I'm, thinking I'm going to do it, dude. <laughs> I love that song. And my whole band loves April Wine. 
And now I'll, I'll call Miles yeah. and see if he wants to come out. But uh, well, that, if he wants to play with us and do Rock and Roll is a vicious game, that would be incredible. That would be really great. That I'd be totally honored. That would be. I'd blow my mind. I'll tell you what. I'm literally staring at his phone home number in front of me. It's on the side of my computer. I will call wow. him. Wow. And I will say, do you want to come out? So That's cool. Thank you, dude. I'll be happy. Salut. Salut. <laughs> I don't know how much more time do you have. How much more time do you have? Do you have a... Like, well, I, I, you can ask question? me whatever you want. All right. So I just wanted to ask you before, before we wrap up here uh, about Subhuman Race, because I think that album has some great songs. My Enemy, Beat Yourself Blind, Into Another... I mean, just some breaking down. Um, it didn't get its due. Just, just talk to me a little bit about that album. Other than the fact that it's not on vinyl. <laughs> I read, I read a hilarious, totally hilarious uh, internet thread that that put forth the proposition that Subhuman Race was the first record to debut Bob Rock's horrible snare sound that ended up on Saint Anger. <laughs> There's a, whole, there's a whole fucking thread that says, is this is this the origins of Saint Anger, like subhuman race? And that's funny. I got to be honest with you. When I put that record on, which I only have one copy of from Germany, um, uh, when I'm getting ready for my tour, I there I really I myself don't understand the production of that record. I don't I don't. If you came to my living room. And I put down, I'm not trying to sell anything here. I'm telling you the God's honest truth. If you came to my living room and we AB'd subhuman race next to Angel Down, you hold your fucking head in your hands. Like it sounds a million times better. Like everything about it, the drums, the guitars, the voice, the every, there's not even a comparison. I don't know. What Bob Rock and, and Randy saw were, were, were thinking, really, when I listened to the production of that record, it seems very odd to me. Um, um, I have to when agree. We went up, when we went up there to work with Bob Rock, we were going up to work with him because of the song Dr. Feelgood. To me, that, that production of the song Dr. Feelgood is the most badass sounding production and we thought we were going to get <laughs> but when we got to to Vancouver to work with Bob Rock in 94 he was more into Veruca Salt than Motley Crue like it was metal was not cool uh he was working with Veruca Salt and all these bands and and I think he he was. We weren't really on the same page, um, production-wise, and uh, um, there are some good tunes on there. I just find that it. I, I find that 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 record is a very dated uh, production sound, and uh, in the same way, probably uh, Lars Ulrich might think Saint Anger is dated to that time. I think Subhuman Race might be like our saint anger <laughs> well you know and, and and joking aside though the the production has always irritated me on that because it's yeah, not we do. We do. right it's not we crisp do. it's it's very um, muddy it, 
breaking down it sounds like my stereo's broken like when i rehearsed to that i'm like what the fuck is this like it's like it's just like sounds weird like i don't i don't know what to tell you and then i put on american metalhead i'm like oh my god like it's like like night and day i'm do it yourself i'm not making it up i mean you fucking check it out i'm i'm not trying to sell anything i'm just but i agree with you the facts i i agree with you i think that that album had great songs but it was mm-hmm. just delivered poorly not by the band but by the product it just sounds, yes it, yes it's as a kid have had the production of dr feelgood on right. the song beat yourself blind can you even imagine what that would sound like like right i mean it, it's it's to me it's 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 your hotter than hell because Kiss is hotter than hell has great songs, but it just sounds like ooh. Well, it sounds like hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. But it, I love it. I mean, I, I still, you know, I, I'm proud of Subhuman Race. I just think it sounds really a lot like 1994. You know what I mean? Like, how could it not? I mean, that's what records are. Records capture the time and the place that they were made in. And, and that's definitely the sound of 94 right there. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> you will, uh, you will of course be at the Fufoon electric, which translates to the electric ass on. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a Fufoon Wonderful. Is. A fufun is an and it's a great club. It is, uh, it is a place where, for example, Nirvana played before they were Nirvana. Wow, really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's, wow. It's a, it's a old. I mean, it's just a fantastic venue to see a live show, and it's right across the street from Steve's Music Store. So, bonus. <laughs> well, the one thing I do like to do on a day off is go to a vinyl record store. And I'm a, I love collecting Kiss. Um, if you can point me in the direction of any hole-in-the-wall vinyl places that have first-issue Canadian pressings of uh, quality records, Kiss albums, or promo material, that that shit rocks my world. I collect that stuff. Yes, there there are some great places in in Montreal for vinyl collecting. So what I'll cool. do is I will reach out to Brent Woods and say, "Hey, Brent, Sebastian." Asked no, but about he me. he fucking goes in there and he gets the ones I want. The bastard. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll tell Rob to lose. Don't tell. He'll go in like the locust and fucking take all the good ones. <laughs> yeah, but we've got some great vinyl places here. So we'll, I'll 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 make sure to to, to point those out. But it, it's going to be a great show. I mean, uh, what I saw at M three is what I always see, is just great live shows, and it was... Well, I can guarantee you that this will even be better than M3, because, uh, you know, I feel sorry for bands these days that don't get to go on a bus tour, because when you fly out and do a show and then fly home, that's a lot different than when you're playing every night um, rolling across the country. You, you, when when we play every night, we get our muscles going like crazy. I, I mean, we all build up playing chops that, that that's like impossible to get when you're at home, like singing along to the record. Or I mean, you can rehearse all you want in your living room. It's not the same as belting it out in front of a, a live crowd. So by the time we get to Montreal, we'll have been on the road for like a month. 
<laughs> so, so we'll be really rocking. <laughs> Primed and ready to go. And and, yes. you'll, and you'll have the Tesla guys in the venue. So that, Well, we'll get them up on the stage, too, for sure. I love yeah. those guys. Yep. They're and, great. Um, in fact, the, uh, the Steve's Music Store right across the street, they're doing a Sticks signing that night. So there's going to be a wow. lot of rock and roll in a very small square footage. It's going to be great. great. Yeah, you got right it. Right on Montreal. Right That's on Montreal. Be. Thank cool. you. A great pleasure. Thanks, Thank Mitch. You. Great talking to you, dude. Yes, absolutely great pleasure. And it's been it's been too long, and hopefully we can do another one soon. But Right on. Say hi to your mom for me. I will. Absolutely. Okay. Cheers. All right, buddy. Thank you. Have a good one. You too now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Very big thank you to Sebastian Bach. Of course, the Home Away From Home Tour keeps rolling on through the summer. And uh, please uh, do yourself a favor and check that out. And uh, Mr. Brown, welcome back for part three. You bet, Mitch. Thanks for having me. I'm having a blast with all uh, with all the uh, great stories, and uh, yeah. hope your hope your fans enjoy all of the uh, all of the malarkey. Yes, yes, we do. And uh, now I've got uh, Jack Russell. Uh, I have known Jack for many, many years. He is heading out on the Hair Nation tour with Jack Russell's Great White Bullet Boys and Enough's Is Enough. It starts in September in San Diego, which is probably the greatest city in North America. Montreal coming in second, I would think. But but they have palm trees there, so they win. They win by default. Now uh, at M3 that you and I were both at. We had Great White with, of course, Mark Kendall and stuff. We didn't have Jack Russell's Great White, but you gotta love Jack, right? I mean, have you had any kind of interactions with Jack? Has has Trickster or you opened up for Great White with Jack? Yeah, man, well, man, many times on our first tour back in 1991 um, after I believe it was the first leg of the Scorpions tour um, it was Trickster and the Scorpions and then Great White got added to the tour so uh, we toured together for three months in 1991 and then next year in 1992 Great White and Trickster did the Kiss Revenge tour together so yeah we have a lot of lot of, lot of years together and Trickster you know over the last since we reformed in 2008 we've played numerous times with uh, with Great White and with Jack, and he's now, a dear friend. I, I I I really like him a lot. Now now back up the truck. You said Kiss Revenge Tour, which I'm going to have to do an, an entire episode with you dedicated to that because that was the greatest Kiss tour, probably other than maybe the the reunion tour that that I got to see. I mean, obviously in the 70s they were doing different stuff, but I started seeing Kiss on, on Dynasty tour, and mm-hmm. that Revenge tour with Derek Sherinian, since we were talking about keyboard players off stage, <laughs> right? We love Derek. Everybody loves Derek. Uh, and everybody know. knows, love- everybody knows the story. We're not breaking any confidence here. Um, mm-hmm. But what a freaking tour that was. I mean, how, how many shows did you do on that tour? We did the whole American tour from, from, you know, which was only, it was only three months, but yeah, we did. Well, like did I see 15- you up in Montreal then? No. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. remember. I remember it was well, October fifth. For you all, Great White. It, Great White wasn't on the bill. It was Trickster, Faster, Pussycat, and Kiss. And then Great White came on after um, after Faster Pussycat left. But wow. yeah, it was uh, the Revenge tour was phenomenal. You know, not not the most successful tour for Kiss, but certainly in the fans' eyes. It was one of the you know best non makeup tours that they ever did. You know. Well, well, here's what I thought was was great about it. First of all, 
Eric Singer with the double bass drum, he was drumming on those songs like you've never... Now that now they've sort of scaled them back and they said, you know, get a Peter Chris kind of kit and keep it down to the simple stuff. Yeah, yeah. But man, was he unleashed. And that just added a dimension. But then also, you look at the 80s tours and some of the set lists, and they were good, but they were focusing on the Crazy Night stuff or the Hot in the Shade stuff or the Asylum stuff. And then all of a sudden on Revenge, they're pulling out Parasite. And they're pulling out these, and then you're, you know, you've got Deuce with the double bass, and you're just going, oh, oh, yeah, uh, it, for sure. And of course, you've got Derek in the back, you know, plunking along on the key. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, what a great tour. Um, so, so Jack, uh, during our conversation, had a lot of great stuff to uh, to talk about. He talks about, of course, the Hair Nation tour, but Jack's going to do this thing where he has a deal with Cleopatra Records, eight records or nine records, and he is going to go re-record the entire Great White catalog, or at least, you know, the, the the stuff from the 80s that we're all familiar with. And uh-huh. he's going to offer different arrangements. He's going to do, you know, piano versions and acoustic versions and then plugged-in versions. And it's an interesting concept to hear an artist come back, you know, 30 years after the fact and reimagine and rearrange uh, uh, songs. Uh, is that something that, that you're down with, or is that does that sound somewhat... Look, I, I don't have any opinion when it comes. I mean, we all know that, uh, you know, first and foremost, a lot of the bands, a lot of the biggest bands have re-recorded their hits and you do that. We, we've we all done it for what they say, licensing purposes. You know, you do it so, you know, the, the if, a, if a, a car company wants to, you know, wants to release, give it to me good and put it in a car commercial, you don't have to deal with the record label because they're going to take most of the money. Um, but with with what Jack's doing, you know, hey, look, you know, he's he's part of that, you know, part of those, he's the voice of those songs, all the hits Great White had, he was the singer, you know, I mean, I don't know who wrote the songs, but, you know, God bless him, let him do whatever he wants, I'm down, I'm down with whatever any band wants to do, you know, I can't tell anybody what to do, yeah. so I, I hope, you know, and, 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 but the most important thing, <clears throat> the only thing I'm not down with is if if it's if it's shitty, you know. If it's not, if you're not going to do good versions <clears throat> of the songs, and they're going to come out and you're going to embarrass yourself, then then no. But I don't think that's going to be the case because Jack's voice is still great, and you know, do do whatever, you know, knock yourself out. You yeah. know, I heard I have Journey's version of all the, you know, with Arnell singing all the Journey hits and stuff, and it's phenomenal. Cheap Trick did it, Kiss did it. You know, Def Leppard re-recorded a couple of their songs. You know, I, I get it. You know, I certainly get it. You know, I don't want to go into the dirty details, but, you know, we all know some of the reasons why. Yeah, well, and, and I get it, too. And, and in terms of, you're right, a lot of that stuff that gets re-recorded is because they want to put it in a movie or they want to put it on a car commercial. And, and that's just part of the business, and, I, and I'm down with that. But I'm also down with any musician, uh, you know, that you have a right to work. And if re-recording these albums is going to lead to further work, or that is the work, and I'm down with that because we all have to make a living. 
and that's uh, that, that's you know that, that's really you know that's really the 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 most important thing about this and we all have fans have their allegiance to certain members of bands and you know just talking about sebastian same thing man let them let them all play whatever songs they want and do whatever because they all were part of making that magic happen you know great white those guys would not be out playing you know their their version of great white without jack russell he was the guy he was the voice of that band you know and you know, no matter what, anybody there, there are replacements for all these guys, but there's only one original. You know what I mean? You know, and especially when it comes to, you know, the foreigners, the, you know, all the bands that have replacement vocalists. Yeah, there's there's always somebody who can take your place, but there's only one original. You know what I mean? Right. But I'll, I'll say this for, for, since you mentioned Foreigner, I just saw them in, in June in Saratoga Springs, which, by the way, is where I saw you on Def Leppard uh, in 2004, uh, yes, sound yes. checking that first that time. Was, but Right, but that was but, it. That was the that was the magic sound check with Paul Stanley over my shoulder, watching me, <laughs> watching me sound check. Yeah, that was that was a great day. But no, but just to, to Kelly Hansen, you know, he has added a a new dimension to Foreigner. It's not Lou Graham, and we're not going to pretend it's Lou Graham. But if Kelly wasn't the guy they had picked, I don't think a foreigner would be doing what they are doing today he has added such a renewal to that band such a, a re-energized the band the songs as he sings them uh sounds great so you know yeah he's phenomenal he's phenomenal he's totally he's the one guy who's taken the band and taken it to a new level because his he's a total rock star performer he's like he's got the voice like lou graham but uh another he's got something else and he's he's also he kind of looks like steven tyler up there and he's totally rocking out i mean he's taken that band you know and and totally rejuvenated it and i love kelly and i'm so happy for him and, and his success with that band yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I don't know if you, you heard that noise in the background, but I actually have a stack of Foreigner CDs right on the desk. And as I was talking about Kelly, I was moving my arms around and I knocked them all over. But that's that's my, my love for Foreigner. So let, let's get back re- real quick to Jack Russell. He, of course, uh, I said, has this tour coming up. It's not very long, though. It's only 21 dates. Nothing in Canada yet. I'm hoping that changes because we do need to see him up here. And uh, here we go. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, the voice of Great White, Jack Russell. We are speaking with Jack Russell of, of course, Jack Russell's Great White. Jack, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. And you've got a lot of great news. Yeah, you know, Mitch, and, and back at you. You know, you're always one of my favorite journalists, and you tell it like it is. And there's not too many people out that have the knowledge you have and the personality and everything that goes along with it. I'm not blowing smoke. I'm just telling you like it is. Yes, yeah, so thank and, you. Uh, yeah, I got some great news. So let me let me start yeah, with this got... great news. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but let me start. Let, let me set no, this no, up. No, no, go ahead. You have Please. got, of course, the uh, album Shelter Me that came out uh, a while back, but now it's been re-released, and so we're going to talk about that. But first and foremost, you've got this Jack Russell's Great White Tour with the Bullet Boys and Enough's Enough running September 12th all the way through November. And, of course, no Canadian dates, so I'm going to have to uh, to... to to do something to change that, but what a great yep. little package that's going to be. It really is. You know, we're doing bigger rooms, um, Live Nation's putting on, which is, you know, something to say in and of itself. I mean, uh, that, you know, they would think of low little Jack Russell, one of the guys, you know, and uh, pigs that go on this tour, and I couldn't say no, you know. It was a 
a time to go out with some people I've always wanted to. Of course, I've toured with Mark and the Bullet Boys years ago, but I never had a chance to tour with Chip. And he's one of my best friends. I just spoke to him the other day, and he was just all excited. Hey, I heard you broke your back. You're going to be all right. I go, yeah, man, I did a show Saturday night. I had a fractured vertebrae. And uh, six days later, I was on stage doing a show, and he couldn't believe it. I said, well, look, dude, everything I've been through, a broken back is like nothing. It's like a toothache. (laughs) So, you know, we're up and running. Played last night. Played the last weekend before. So, yeah, but he's great. I love him. Great band, great songs. Yeah, yeah. He, be great too. You got to love Chip. Now, uh, just before I, I, I move on here, let's just get a quick health update. We know you've had some struggles in the last five or six years. We've known about, the, you know, the stomach and the this and the that. How are we doing now? I mean, are you because I look at your tour schedule and I look at what you're doing. You're always out there. You're always on the road. You're all you don't seem to be somebody who's um being slowed down by any ailments. So is that the proper sort of perception? You're, you're, you're doing a hundred percent fine. You're, you're good to go. Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. You know, my, my physical health is great. I'm, I'm down to 150 pounds, which is where I'm supposed to be. My cholesterol is good. My heart's good. My lungs are good. Um, you know, aside from the fact that I fell, uh, five feet off my boat onto a dock and fractured a vertebrae, other than that, I'm you know, great, but I mean, it's, it, it stands a testimony of my health that I can get up six days later and go out and do a show. Yeah, it really so, does. you know, I'm feeling really good. My pipes have never been better. Um, we're working on a new album. I just sang the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, Born to be Wild. That's going to be released. Um, Shelton, as you said, has been released in the States for the first time ever. It was released in Japan in 96, but it was never released anywhere else. Uh, Cleopatra released that. They're releasing um, an album we have called One Spitting Acoustical Bites, which is just as it sounds. It's the One Spitting album recorded from start to finish acoustically. And it is, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm telling you, it, it's something I'm very, very proud of. Yes. And we're going to do the same thing with uh, Twice Shy and also Hooked. And we're already working on our second uh, studio album. So there's a lot of things going on. And I'm wow. very, very busy, which I love, which I love. Not to mention I'm getting my boat up. And ready to go to shark, shark season, so I'm uh, I'm busy at home, busy on the road. All right, so so listen, there's uh, a lot there's a lot to digest it. there. So let let me let me dial it back a bit, and I'll go through this one one pick, at a time. Pick it first, apart, yeah, yeah. First of all, you did mention the uh, once bitten acoustic album that's going to come out, but before I get to that, you and I share a friend in common, Rust Dwarf of the Killer Dwarves. You did some acoustic shows uh. with him last year. Um, yeah. How was that experience being out there with Russ and singing some of the Killer Dwarf songs and having his voice voice on the on the Great White stuff? Uh, would you consider doing that again? Sort of, so, sort of two questions there. Oh, in oh, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. I, I love him as a person. I love him as an artist. He's got an impeccable voice. Um, it was funny because I first met him when I went down. I don't go see bands. And uh, Tommy Lee and I went down to a place called The Palace. It's not there any longer, but it was in Hollywood. It was right across from where Capitol Records is. And we went down there to see him play. And I was just like, oh, my God, this guy's phenomenal. So we met that night. And, you know, we even talked on and off over the years. And we reconnected at M3. And then we ended up doing some shows together, some acoustic shows. And it was just so cool. I got some great pictures of being him on stage, you know, singing together. And it was just, you know, I have him on my wall. It was, it's, 
I don't have many pictures of my wall. That's one of them. Uh, he's just a fantastic guy and, and what a singer. Yeah, just what really. And there's some great video of you two on YouTube that uh, I suggest fans go check out. Now, Shelter I, Me. Yeah, go I, ahead. Didn't, I haven't seen that. I have to look that myself. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It there. it, there's there's a bunch from October of 2017 and stuff, and it's just it's, it's just fun to watch as a fan. Now, Shelter Me, as sure. you said came out in 1996 in Japan. We now have this 2018 U.S. version. Is it exactly the same version? Have you updated anything? Have you added some strings to something or, or changed the drum beat? Or uh, Is it the same album or is it an updated version or at least remastered? No, it's exactly the same. It's, I'll tell you what's so funny is it is such a rare record that my record label had to buy it off eBay for 90 bucks so wow. they could reproduce it. <laughs> you could have called me. I have, I have it. Um, I, you know, and I also they didn't have, want to wait. I had one at home. They didn't want to wait. They didn't want to wait. Now I also have another one from 2002 called for you. Is that something that we might see come out here later or is that one? They're going, yeah, they're going to release that one again as well. Okay, so you've got that. Okay, so now let's get into the nitty-gritty here, this this really sort of cool uh, project you have. So the Once Bitten album, which came out in 1987, just one of those albums that turned me into a fan of the band. Rock Me, of course, just wow. You're doing the entire album acoustically. Uh, explain. Yeah. Well, don't explain. I mean, I think we know what that means, but, but just... Talk to me about the concept. Is it absolutely every song? Every song. It's the same record from start to finish, except for this one bonus track, which is we re-recorded Babe Malivio in the studio. Oh, uh, the... by Zeppelin. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that's very cool because so you had done that on the track. You had done that on the MTV and... Unplugged. Yeah, exactly. Oh, speak. Let me. I'm not to get off track, but you're speaking of projects, and I don't want to forget this. And on December sixth and. 7th, I believe it is. We start in Denver, Colorado, and we start Jack Russell's Great Zeppelin. And that's going to be myself, my original drummer, Gary Holland, my guitarist, Robbie Lochner, a gentleman named Michael Oliveri on keyboards and guitar, who is a singer and keyboard player for Leatherwolf and guitar player, and um, Dan McNay, my bass player on bass. So we'll be doing nothing but Led Zeppelin songs like we did on the Great Zeppelin album. And we're going to change this up a little bit, record that, and re and release that album as uh, Great Zeppelin Two. Oh, so we'll be doing some shows on that. We'll be touring on that for a while. We're just we're accepting dates right now. That's great. That, now, of course, that's the album that came out in '98. Now, uh, back then, you did Ramble On, Since I've Been Loving You. Uh, what else had you done? Uh, yeah. Immigrant Song. Oh, we did. Your Maker. We did. Uh, Thank you. We did. Uh, in the Light. We did. Um, Stay with the Heaven. We did. Uh, the Rover. Um, yeah, just uh, Living Love Made. Um, I have the list in front, but we did a lot of songs. We're gonna. It, my drummer goes. Gary Holland goes. Man, you know, I listen to record. It's really good. But did you plan it to be that mellow? I thought. No, I just pick songs I like. He goes, what if we do another one and we do it like more up-tempo songs? I go, well, yeah, there's a lot of songs we didn't cover. So we're going to do like Achilles' Last Stand, um, Black Dog, you know, Heartbreaker and Living Love and Made. Well, of course, we'll do Stairway to Heaven and songs like that. But um, there's some ones that we haven't touched on, you know, um, and we want to get into those, you know, Misty Mountain Hop, Dancing Days. You know, so it'll be uh, not the same exact show, 
know, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Black again. Dog. Now, now, of course, if it was the exact same show, I don't think it would matter because it was 20 years ago. So, hey, right, why right. not? Right. Well, it will. Be, there'll be a lot of songs that are the same. It's just going to be a longer show. That that show there, we actually had 16 songs originally. But there was a few we couldn't use because there was some uh, um, rhythm section mistakes, we'll just say that. And we couldn't use the songs. Like we didn't know we swap a mind, good times, bad times. There was a couple of other ones that, you know, didn't quite fly. I mean, even even when the levee breaks, there was some uh, drumming mistakes. But I thought, you know what? It's such a great song. Everything, it's, everything else came out so good. We'll just let that go by. You know, it's live. Now, now... Is that going to be a plugged-in performance, or or is that an acoustic? Oh yeah. Okay, so it's no, fully no, plugged no, it's in. Full band. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Now, the the once bitten acoustic version. When does that come out? Is that for 2018, or is that for for some other? Yeah, uh, that should be this fall. That'll be this fall because I have there's a movie coming out called The Guest List, which is um you know, about my life story intermingled with the lives of a lot of the people that run the road on tragedy and, you know, the whole story of that. And it, I don't want to get too much into it. Let's just say it's a beautiful piece of cinematography and I've only seen the trailer and it is beautiful and it is a very respectful way of telling the story. And, and, you know, it, it's just, uh, it really ended up being, more about the love that we all have for this type of music and what a phenomenon it is, uh, 80s music, and how it still rings a chord with everybody. I mean, I look out in the audience, I see people with kids with eight, eight years old kids with T-shirts on hanging down their knees, you know, singing every word I've ever written. And I'm thinking, I wrote that song, you weren't even a twinkle in your dad's eye, you know? And it's just, it's, it's what brings us all together, you know? It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon, it, and it will really- never be repeated. It really is, yeah. and and I've had this conversation with a lot of uh, of artists recently. Uh, Mike Score, the Flock of Seagulls, Charlie Benante of Anthrax, there and others. There has just been a great resurgence of the scene, but it's because the music from the '80s. It didn't matter if it was Duran Duran or Flock of Seagulls or Great White or Guns right. N' Roses. It sold fun. It sold, um, you know, a hope. And then the music that came after was so very dire, and it was all about how the world is awful, and everybody's awful, oh. and everything's awful, and oh, so yeah, but yeah, but I'm making millions of dollars on on how awful everything is, you know. Yeah, entertain me, entertain me. <laughs> no, you entertain me. I'm paying the money, you know. Yeah, and so I it's... mean, the '80s was about celebration of life, and that's what it's all about. People go there not to think about their problems, not to think about how crazy the world is. We already know that. Watch that in the news. I want to hear, like you said, some hope. You know, yeah, have you know, fun, man. We're only here for we're only here for a, a, a drop of water in the in, in the sea. That's, you know, we're here for nothing, a brief time. You know, so have fun. You know, enjoy your enjoy the people, the people around you, and let's not fight with them. Let's enjoy each other. You know. Yeah, and that was, by the way, that's a great pull quote right there. That it's a celebration of life. I think that really sums up. The 80s scene. I mean, when you go see Poison, or you go see Def Leppard, you go see Great White, or Jack Russell's Great White, or what? You, you, it's just we're we're all here together having, you know, the M3 Rock Festival. It's just like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a party, you know. Uh, so good time. Now, you also mentioned that Twice Shy is going to be redone. So again, all acoustic, if I understood you correctly. Does it include yeah. the bonus tracks that have been that have come out over the years? Uh, you know, wasted rock ranger, bitches and other women, and that kind of stuff. 
or is oh, it? Oh yeah, really- we're gonna do, we're gonna do all that. We're gonna do all that. It's gonna be uh, you know, it's gonna be what it was. And I when when I say acoustic, I don't mean just guitar and vocals. I mean there's some songs like we did with percussion and some songs we did with drums. You know, songs that were appropriate. It's funny because songs that I thought would never translate to acoustic were some of my favorite songs on the record, like Never Change Heart, um, um, Living on the Edge, which is, you know, gang, gang, gang. I mean, it sounds amazing. I was like, when scratching my head going, I can't believe this. But then it goes back to my theory, like when I write, I always say, you know, if a, if a song doesn't hold up with just a guitar and a voice, it's not worth working on. You know, it has the bare bones have to be there. Because you can add all the frosting you want. If you got a lousy cake, you got a lousy cake. Yeah, you see, so. and and you know, for House of Broken Love, and you tell me that to bugger off if if you don't like the idea, but I could see that one as forget acoustic, just with piano, a piano and a vocal. I think for House oh, of Broken Love, right? That would be beautiful. Yeah, you know, we've been doing angel song with just an just a piano, and my voice. That's all I've been doing, yeah. like, and and it's really amazing. Um, yeah, that would be a great song to do with just piano. House, I never thought about that. What a great piano song that would be. That, that, wouldn't that just be spectacular? I mean, it really you know, would. It really would. Yeah. So, 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 and then because we're doing the same thing with Hooked, right? So again, it yeah, gets yeah, the full yeah. treatment. Uh, does that also include all the the different bonus tracks, Train to Nowhere, Down at the Doctor, and all that stuff, or do we stick to? Well, those, those are actually those are actually um on an album called The Blue EP, Train right. to Nowhere and things like that. Yeah, but we'll be doing those records over. I may even go so far to dig up through Cycle City and Sail Away. You never know. I mean, right now I have an open-ended record deal with uh, Cleopatra. We've got, I've gotten eight solid record deals with them and more to follow. So, um, you know, uh, Brian, uh, Brian Pereira from Cleopatra, I've known him for 30 yep. years and we have a great relationship. And, you know, he really understands me and what I'm doing, and he loves the band. And, you know, I feel really great because the only rock bands in this label are, are, are myself and Tom Kiefer. And I'm trying to get Tommy to do this blues song I wrote on my next album, which is just beautiful. So I'm, I'm hoping he'll hear it and go, yeah, I want to sing it with you, you know, because that's been one of my all-time, you know, that's on my bucket list to have him and, and Steven Tyler do a song. But, you know, Jack and Steven down is like, you know, <laughs> trying to catch a cockroach in dark in the dark, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't want to sound mean, but you know, good luck with that. Because, but I, I, as a mm-hmm. fan, I, I would love it. But talk to me about. Yeah, well, those... he already told me yes. He told me yes, but it's like you know, it's like he told me it was a Santa Claus once too. <laughs> uh, what is it about those three albums? Because when I, I don't want to say discovered, but when I got into Great White, those were sort of the three uh, that that defined the band for me that I could put on shuffle mm-hmm. on the CD player in the car. And just talk to me about that period of time and those three albums, because call it rock and roll and, and rock me and, and, and house of bro. I mean, was that the apex? Was that, was, were you at the top of your game at that point? You know, I, I would, I would say yes and no. The one thing that for me, it's unfortunate because, you know, we broke late in the 80s. I mean, we, we, when we first put our EP out in 1982 on our own label, we were the first band ever to get on regular rotation on a major radio station that wasn't on a signed major label. We actually, um, Adam Knight was played on KMET, 
which was at that time uh, KMT and KLOS were the two big stations in LA, and KMT is no longer here. Um, but we, my manager came to our rehearsal one day, and he goes, "Stop, stop! I want you to hear this." And he's looking at his watch, and we're thinking it's going to be a commercial for a, 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 you know, a concert coming up. And all of a sudden, they start playing out of the night, and we're waiting for the guy to stop and go, "Tomorrow night, great way." And the song kept going. And all of a sudden, we realized they're playing our song. And we're just like high-fiving and, you know, cartwheels. And, you know, and he goes, yeah, we've, they've, they've added you. And we're like, how did you pull that off? And, you know, but he was just a really savvy English guy who ended up managing Guns N' Roses, you know, later on. But at the time, it was a major coup. And then, you know, it got to the point where all the stations were playing our stuff. And every label in town wanted to sign us. So it was New Year's Eve, we played the Troubadour, and we, I drove up, we were driving up to the Troubadour, and the street was full of people. There was cop cars on Santa Monica Boulevard trying to let the traffic through. I saw one of my crew guys come out and go, dude, why haven't they opened the doors? He goes, Jack, it's already sold out. You have to do two shows. And I had the flu really bad. And I remember being upstairs in between shows, throwing up in a trash can, you know, smiling and laughing. We went out and did another show. And the next day, it was like every label in town, we had lunch with every single, single label. And it was just like, have a cigar. Oh, we're out to win. Oh, stick with us. Oh, you know, we're a team. And, you know, we ended up signing with EMI America, who, after we went with the label, we're on the road with Judas Priest, biggest tour of the year. And I walked across the street from an arena we were playing at, and I looked at the record store. I said, hey, what's the Great White album? He goes, who? I said, Great White. We're playing with Judas Priest tonight at the arena. I never heard of you guys. Come to find out, Gary Gersh, the guy who signed us, the reason he signed us was so he could sabotage us and get the president's job. So what happened? We sold 100,000 records, and our contemporaries went millions. So they dropped us. He got the president's gig, and we went out and put our record out again, Shot in the Dark, which was picked up by Capital, their sister label, and that's where we had our success. But back to your original question, um, at that time, yeah, Great White, that was a peak because after the Hooked album came out, uh, they had a new president, Hill Milgram, and he was like Bonnie Raitt. He didn't want to deal with anybody's hand-me-downs, so we were kind of pushed off in the, you know, on the back burner, and we released what I thought was one of Great White's best albums, Psycho City. Um, albeit, you know, the solos in the end were pretty long and drawn out, and it wasn't my favorite production, but it was a good record. And then after that, Sail Away, we went to BMG. After that, we went to Imago. After that, we went to, I uh, got us a deal with uh, John Kalodner uh, with Portrait. Portrait. Sony. And then I, yeah, then, I, then I passed on the second record because we had, actually, we had sold 106,000 uh, units. And at that time in 1999, that was unheard of. We had a number six single at radio, which was Rolling Stone. And John, the next song was supposed to be the money song, as John would say. And it was called, called Ain't No Shame. Well, the money they made off of that, they took it and they put it into the Rat album because the Rat album was tanking and they didn't, they spent so much money signing Rat, they thought, okay, we'll get some of our money back. Well, so they left us high and dry. No more money to, for the second single. They stuck into the Rat. Rat's album bombed anyway, and which was a shame. I had two songs on it. But nonetheless... You know, when they asked me to do another record, I said, John, you know, really? I'm not blaming you, but you, your company just crapped all over me. I go, I'm not going to do that. And that's when I went solo for a little while. And then I brought the band back together again for uh, the 25th anniversary, um, Back to the Rhythm album. And then I did one more record with them, Rising. 
and that's when all whole thing blew apart, you know, after I got sick and, you know, my yeah. drug abuse and everything. And I don't blame them. You know, I, I take responsibility on my end, you know, but the bottom line is I'm happier. They're happier. I just been texting back and emailing back and forth to Terry Lewis and, and, you know, we're getting along great and we're both happy and I'm happy for them, you know? Yeah. So let me, let me just go back on some of the stuff you said. First of all, Psycho City, whenever I talk to any member of Great White, whether it's uh, Mark Kendall or, or Lardy or even uh, Alan Niven, they all say that that's Great White's best album. It's, it's the, and yet mm. in terms of sales and stuff, it didn't do so well because it just, it just by 1992, all that stuff was, was, yeah, you know, go ahead. But but big goodbye, old Rose Motel. I mean, that love is a lie. That is just yeah. spectacular stuff. Yeah, there was some great stuff on that record. I mean, we recorded it. We recorded it up at a big ranch up in San Inez, about a block from Michael Jackson's Neverland, right? And um, we had a mobile truck out there. And I remember one time I was out with my thirty out six, and I'm firing off rounds, and all of a sudden they get to. Brody comes out and goes, hey, they say to quiet there. They keep, they're hearing your gunshots over the drum tracks. Oh, my God. Oh God. It was so loud. We had some fun up there, yeah, you know. It was, uh, unfortunately, the reason we went up there, we found out, was because Alan Niven had a mistress who lived in San Andres. So he could carry on his affair with her and at, at our expense. cost us $250,000 to record the record. I mean, and we could have done the same thing at home, you know. So that's when things started to fall apart with him and I. Yeah. You know? Well, but, um, I don't I, think it was our best record. I think Great White's best record was Can't Get There From Here. If I had to pick one album, you know, I mean, of course, there's songs I could make a great best of, but as far as an album from front to beginning, front to back, my favorite is Can't Get There From Here. Really? The, the, the portrait record one? Yeah, yeah. I think the production on that, uh, with Jack Blaze and I working together writing, um, there was just some brilliant songs on it, you know, and wow. it was nice to have someone else mix the band besides Michael because sometimes you can't you know, you, you can't see the forest from the trees, you know, and, and having somebody else's ear, you know, in and when they're mixing it, I, I was just really happy with it. There were some great songs in there, you know. And sure a few are gonna disagree with me, but I mean, a song like Silent Night, I mean, it's just, what a beautiful song, you know? There was some Wooden Jesus, I love that song. Yeah, see, um, Wooden Jesus is the one I was going to yeah. go to. That's the one that always strikes a chord with me. Now, I will say this, you are absolutely right about bands getting outside ears. Whenever I see a record come across the desk and it says produced by, you know, band or band, I always go, Ugh. Right. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be- because that is to me, and and this is every band that's ever done. It drives me crazy because you don't see that distance. You don't have the. It's not very objective or subjective. It's just no. And it it it, 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 it there should be a law. I mean, really, there should be a law. You just right, right, right. You know, but uh, well, you, well, you might as well just you release your demos. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, we're thinking as far as we can think. Or, you know, and then when you get something else in there that goes, hey, wow, I don't want somebody that's going to come in there and go, oh, my God, I've got this vision for your band and it's going to be this and that. And you're going like, no, dude, you're, you're missing the mark. Yeah. I want somebody that hears what we are but can expand on it. And that's what Jack did. You know, um, it was so cool riding with him. The guys, I mean, the guy would run down, he runs every day. He'd get up in the morning, he'd run seven miles, he'd come back. 
and it have this idea for the song. I'm like, really? You just did that in a seven-mile seven, seven mile run? Or Don Dawkins, for example. We're in the studio, and we had this song. So I'm going, okay, what do you think? Don drives by and goes, down the road in my car, wooden Jesus on my dashboard, blah, 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 blah. And we went to his house, and I started writing it, and we both wrote it together, and like 10 minutes later, there was a song. And I'm going, man, I don't care what you say about Don Gawkin. You can say what you want, but... I, I, I love you know, Don. I, my, my, <laughs> my, my joke about Don is, hi, I'm Don Dawkins, and enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> Listen, and I, I tell that to his face. I mean, he's my... You call him dad. You call him your son. We've known each other for so long, and, and he's integral in this band being signed. I mean, he pulled for us, pushed for us. He did everything. The guy's still to this day. If I call him and say I need this, he'll be right there for me, and vice versa. You yeah. know, I have so much love for that guy. He's so talented. I, I I love Don, and and the same thing about being there for you in 2013. My wife's um, father passed away from cancer, and I put together a Kiss tribute album uh, to raise money for the hospice, raised thirty five thousand, and I had phoned Don. And I said, would you would you do a Kiss cover for me that I could put on this album? And he, without hesitation, I mean, literally, I sent him the music for uh, Cold Gin. He put down the vocal, and two Ooh. hours later, it was done. So I have always, always appreciated Don. And I have to say, and, and I know this has nothing to do with a Jack Russell interview, but when I see sites out there slag him all the time and put up the worst possible... Yeah. I, it's like, you know, F off, people. You know... Yeah, he, he's he's proven his wares. 30, 35 years, forty years in the business. Uh, the oh, Scorpions. More than that, can... I mean, I, hell, I saw a Great White forty years ago, and Don right. was doing his thing long before me. The guy has got, you know, he's done more stuff. I mean, he sang the whole Blackout album while Klaus was recovering from surgery. Klaus came in and copied what Don did. Yeah. So, so most you know, people don't know that, you know. Yeah, so so people who 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 rag on him or on you and stuff is like, where's your forty career, forty year career in the music? It's not an easy business. Uh, everybody has ups and downs. There are days where an accountant is not having a great accounting day, but you don't see it. Yeah, on, I hate that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know. Um, quickly, you mentioned that you you're talking to Terry Ilus, but I, I have uh, you know I saw the band recently at, at at a festival, and I speak to Mark every so often. He has a, a great sort of love and respect for you. I know that when I spoke to him the last time, he said that he would play with you again. We were talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he said, if we ever got elected into that, of course I would want Jack to be there. I, I, of course I... Um, you know, stuff went down, but we're getting older. What, what is your sort of take on Mark right now? And and you, you can't, of course, deny that he was very, very important to Great White and, oh, and eventually no. to your career. Mark and I were Great White. We started a band called Highway in November 1978. He called me on the phone. Well, first of all, let me go back here. In 77, I was in a band. Um, I joined this cover band. I'd just gotten out of a progressive rock band that was playing original stuff. We are playing the Starwood and all these other gigs. But I didn't like the music. You know, it was prog rock. But I joined the band because I wanted to, you know, elevate my career. I was, you know, 16 years old, and these guys were 22. And I was in a band that was playing backyard parties. And I'm like, I'm not going to go anywhere doing this. And I talked to my band. Oh, we're not ready to do that. I said, look, I'm ready. I got to go. 
So I joined these guys and we did some shows and I got to the point where I just was like, I can't be singing this stuff. I don't like it. My heart's not into it. So I went down to a place called Weird Plaza Music and I looked on a little board there and it says Wanted Singer, Hard Rock, you know, uh, Scorpions. Um, and this is where he knew who Scorpions were. I mean, Judas Priest, um, you know, uh, uh, Trower, Hendrix, um, you know, UFO. I had all the bands I liked. So I called them up and I went down and jammed and I'm like, oh my God, you're great. Okay, we'll start. So we, I joined the band. Now, at that time, there was a band, a Crosstown Rival Band, all right? And I never heard them, but of course they sucked because of the Crosstown Rival Band. And they were called Zizix. And Mark Hendel was a guitar player. Now, keep in mind, I never heard them, never seen them. I left the band I was in for the same reason. They didn't want to go original, so... I met these other guys and we were jamming and playing original songs and they were okay, you know. And um, so Mark kept calling me. He got my number from a mutual friend of ours and he kept calling me. Hey, this is Mark Kendall. I'm a guitar player of a band called Civics. I'm like, oh, God, those guys suck. And we never heard them, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, the way Mark used to tell it was like, yeah, he had like the flu for six months, you know what I mean? Every time he called me, oh, I'm still sick, you know. So finally one day I said, you know what, this guy's never going to quit calling me. I'm going to have to go over to his house and listen to him play, and then just tell him, hey, thanks, but no thanks. So I went over there, and of course, just what I thought, was a really big, fat drummer, you know, and he played side stick, which was totally on rock, and then the bass player had a mustache, and in those days, if you had a mustache, you were in Three Dog Night. It wasn't cool, you know? And Mark was this really huge, tall, freaky-looking guy with this really curly white hair. He came to my house wearing yellow satin pants. I'm thinking, oh, what have I got myself into? So I went to the house and we jammed some songs and they were good, you know, but it was just the same thing as where I got out of. So I told him, I go, look, man, you know, I'm really trying to find something that's doing original stuff. He goes, well, come here for a minute. And he takes me in this other bedroom. He sits on this bed. And I remember it was this flower print uh, bed cover. And the, the bed was like a, one of those uh, metal poster beds, you know, and, and this is how well I remember it. And he's got this telecaster and he's playing me and he's, playing these songs and I'm like that's really good man who does that and he goes that's my stuff like you're kidding me he goes no I go dude I tell you what you quit your band right now I'll quit the guys out of jam with and we'll start our own band what do you think he goes done so he packed up his stuff we went to the guy's house where I was jamming with packed up my stuff put it on his green station wagon we're driving over the hill to Whittier and we're just going yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna make it blah 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 Guys in my parents' house, my parents, you know, acquiesced, gave us the living room, they moved the team into my old bedroom and, and we started rehearsing there and that's how the band was born. And then um, you know, in in seventy nine I ended up going away for a while for a a, a felony I committed. And um the book's coming out at the end of the year, so if you want to find more about that, it's gonna be called Jack Russell Dancing on the Edge. Um Anyway, suffice to say, I got eight years in court um, through a bunch of clerical mistakes and people bending the rules, and I, I just call it divine intervention. I call it what it is. I got 11 months. 11 months, a year and a half later, oh, I got back with Mark. A year and a half later, we signed our first record deal. So, um, yeah, Mark is, you know, he was my best friend. He was, um, you know, the guy that started this thing with me, if it wasn't for him. You know, our paths were meant to cross, and, you know, we had done some amazing things together. Yeah. And I, I, I always love him like a brother, you know. I don't hold anything against him. 
I wish him the best of luck, and I hope someday that we can be sitting there having a conversation like we used to. You know, and I don't want to join the band. You know, I got my own things going. I know he's got Terry, and they're doing some great stuff together on their own. I listened to the record for the first time like a month ago. I didn't want to like it, you know, but I actually did. I was like, you know, God, these guys sound good. Yeah. You know, um, as far as I'm singing my stuff, well, you know, it, that's hard for me to swallow having anybody singing my stuff because I'm sure it'd be like Robert Plant listening to somebody else sing, or like Robert Plant listening to me sing him. You know, even though I do it pretty well, it would still be like, that's not me, you know? So, yeah. Um, but Terry's a great singer in his own right. And, um, you know, it's, uh, he's doing a good job and he's not doing anything that I wouldn't have done. You know, somebody would offer me the gig, I would have jumped on. I wouldn't accept it and say, well, this is a guy I don't really know. I don't want to put him out of a job. It's like, hey, good that. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to advance my career. So good for him yeah. and good for them. And I, yeah, I miss Mark a lot. I think about him every day. And, I was, and I'm hoping so. I'm hoping one day the phone will ring and it'll be him. You know. And the uh, your version of Babe, I'm going to leave you uh, is great. So you 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 do you do do that 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 Zeppelin thing great. Um, there is a a documentary movie coming out at some point. Do you want to talk about that at this point, or or is, do we keep that for another one, or do you want to explain what you it is? You know what? Yeah. It, it, well, it's just it's about it's called the guest list. Okay. And it's about um, the tragedy in Rhode Island, and and it's about, you know, it, it something that has to do with my life story and, and you know, um, people's lives, uh, their life stories that they're involved in, in, in the that night. And, you know, I have to say that it's, it's, it's done as tastefully and as respectfully as, as you could possibly do it, you know, and... and it's uh it doesn't take any sides like i'm not portrayed the hero and not, it's it is what it is it's just it's very fact based and there's some parts in it that you know just tear me up when i watch them but you know it's it's truth i mean some people feel you know a certain way about me and and some people don't and you know if, if people hate me because they think i had something to do with that well then you know, I have big shoulders, and, and they say God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. But as I told him, you're pushing the envelope on this one. <laughs> but, you know, um, I think it's a really, really well done movie. I think it's going to uh, really um, open people's eyes, um, especially to how powerful this music is and, and the love we all have for it and how those such special times they were. And they will never repeat themselves. You know, there will never be a day when you can walk into a store that is just a record store. Yeah. You know, and I hate to say that, you know, it's not going to happen. I mean, people give me, what do you, what's your advice to an up-and-coming musician? Well, how about don't be a musician and get a real job? <laughs> There's no money in it. <laughs> yeah, the, it, it, it's mean, getting yeah, harder it, and harder. It, oh, yeah. I mean, it's all turned around, you know, Mitch. I mean, it used to be, you know, you make a record. You know, then you go on tour to promote your record. You didn't care if you broke money on the tour. I mean, broke even on the tour because you're supporting your record. And now it's flip flopped. You know, you're making a living off of touring, and the record is just a marketing tool for the tour. So it's uh, and then I hear people going, oh, "I can't believe my favorite band broke up. I can't understand why." Well, maybe because you stole their music and they can't afford to feed their families. Do you ever think of that? Yeah, and that's what happened. And just uh, just real quick on on the uh, 
on the uh, tragedy at the in Rhode Island. Just, uh, just yeah. always in my always in my thoughts, and uh, you, you know, uh, my my condolences to those families. It it's it's something oh, yeah. that marked the music community, and it should just never never be forgotten. And I'm glad to see that uh, Rhode Island and the city got around to putting up a memorial for them. Um, oh, it's beautiful too. It's so beautiful. I've never, I've never been there, but at some point I would want to go. Of course, I'll have to go and collect needle. But yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's just a super, a super monument. I mean, but nothing will bring those people back. But as you said, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful memorial. I mean, it really is. It really it, is. Yeah, I, I, I haven't. Mean, it, 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 I was just going to say, I haven't been either, but I've seen the pictures, and it appears yeah. as though they just got it right. And that that is, yeah. it's just it's just nice to see that it wasn't just brushed under the carpet and that people took the time oh, to yeah. sell it. Oh, yeah. I thought, I thought the owner of the property was just going to sell it and do something else. But he was, uh, you know, kind enough and had a big enough heart to where, you know, he gave that property to them and let them, you know, put this memorial on it and you know if you want to go online you could look up um the guest list um movie and there'll be some information on that um now they did show a trailer at m3 this year um and um i heard it was very well received and you know it's uh has a lot of people in it you know a lot of uh, rock and rollers giving their perspective and, and you know what it meant to them and and you know, it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of uh, cinematography, and the story is is so compelling. There were so many things about that night that I didn't even know that I was I was I was really aghast at some of the things that happened and and why they happened, and um, it was definitely an eye opener, you know. And I think that uh, if I could say anything to anybody, would be that when you go somewhere regardless of a restaurant, a club, a movie theater, you have to keep in mind that the people that own the establishment don't necessarily have your health and well-being first and foremost in their mind. You know, it, it's the money. And you have to, at least I do now, when I go out places, I, I find myself looking for the exit doors and if something would happen, what would, I, what would I do with my wife? Where would I take her, you know? I'm looking for, you know, a, a place of egress, you know, because you just never know. That's one thing it taught me. I mean, it can things like that can happen so fast. Something could go wrong so quick, and if you don't have the wherewithal to, to do what you need to do to survive, you may not. Yeah. You know? And and it's funny. Not funny. It's it's tragic. I've, I go to a lot of shows, and I've seen some clubs where the back doors – which would be points of egress or, or exits are chained right. closed. And I've asked, yeah. why is that chained closed? And they say, well, because people sneak in. And I go, really? You're going to risk 100, 200, 500 people because right. three might sneak in? And I mean, it's, it's, and you there's. Get a security guard. Get a security guard. What's that going to cost for a night? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I just don't get it. I don't get that. I mean, it's, it really shows you how much money it means to people sometimes when, you know, when money becomes more value than a human life, there's something wrong with our society. I mean, it's broken anyway, but I mean, it's, uh, that really kind of shows you the state of affairs we're all in, 
You know, we need to be out there looking out for each other, you know, because nobody else is going to. And this is what I always say at my concerts, man, you know, be good to yourself, but be good to each other, you know. You know, we're all here, you know, we're all here for a short time and, you know, you know love each other, man. You know, don't let this feeling that we all have here on stage tonight and at this concert, you know, go away once you walk out. You know, you need to keep that feeling every day of your life. And remember, you know, we're all part of humanity. So let's be humane. Yeah, I agree. And and you know what? I think that's a great point or a great place to leave it off. Uh, we just got to be yeah. human and humane. And Jack, just a great pleasure talking to you. And I'll, I'll quickly oh, admit that I'll, I'll quickly admit it, it was a it was a, a bit of a challenging interview for me because we have spoken on the phone that not interviews, and so I I sort of knew the answers to some of these questions, and it was hard to sort of fit them in. But I, we, we did great, and, and mm-hmm. thank you so so much. That was a yeah. lot a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, oh, Mitch, you know, it always it's always an honor to talk to you, man. You know, it really is. You're you're See, me, I've done so many interviews, and people say, oh, you get tired of doing those? I said, the only time I get tired of them is when I'm talking to somebody with no intellect, you know, where I basically have to ask the questions and answer them at the same time. They just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you're like, uh, you're like this encyclopedia Rotanica, you know? <laughs> so it's great. You know, I, I, I really enjoy our conversations, and um, it, yep. it's nice to call you friend. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean absolutely, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's a great pleasure, and hopefully... Uh, I can talk to a couple of promoters about getting you up here. I know I've spoken to a couple already about getting that uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, what, what do you want to call it? Led Zeppelin concert, Led Zeppelin oh, tribute Jack night. Was, yeah, Jack Russell was great Zeppelin. Yeah, it's, it's actually a, it's a great it's a Zeppelin tribute. Yeah, yeah so but hopefully it, we can make that happen because I think that would be spectacular. And and getting oh, Jack yeah. Wright's and of course uh, and say hi to Tony in the band. Um, oh, I will. Actually, I actually already did. I did the other night because me and you talked and we talked about doing that other business that we're talking about. Yep. And, uh, so, yeah, everybody's really excited about that. And, um, yeah, so so great. Uh, so, thank yeah, you. That's going to be good. Thank you, Jack. We should, get, we should actually talk about that tomorrow. We'll solidify that. Yes. I'll get your information. You can text me your, uh, your address and whatnot and all that stuff, and uh, we'll go from there. Yep. And I'm going to send you some uh, some shark videos and stuff. And just be ready, because I'll be calling you one day. So, okay, when are you going to come out? And you're yep. welcome to stay with me on the boat for a few days, and I'll take you out, and I'll show you some things you've never seen before. Oh, that's great. That's great. I look forward to that. And, and of course, we didn't talk about the boat during the interview, but we will do no. a whole... Uh, I think another we'll, time, man, another yeah. time. I'll send you a bunch of pictures and stuff like that, yeah. We'll, we'll do a, a wildlife episode where we'll talk about uh, fishing and boats, and we'll, oh, yeah. we'll not talk about Save any rock ocean, and roll. Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that that is a great cause, especially up here in Canada, where where you know uh, the belugas and and the the, the, the yeah. path this way, and and there's just x amount of tons of plastic that they find in their stomachs, and it's just like holy Christ, people, stop! It's just horrible. You know? I know, yeah. I know, it's horrible. I mean, I've seen, I've watched my life here deteriorate in the last six years. When I first came down this harbor as a child. Um, there was starfish everywhere and sea urchins. And I mean, I used to catch 40 pound yellowtail at the back of my slip, you know, and now it's just like, there's all these rock scallops and they live where pollution is. And it's pretty much, it's like the dead sea in the last 50 years, we have managed to kill off 54% of all the life in the ocean. Now, when you think about that, I mean, plankton is the number one manufacturer of oxygen on the planet. Not trees, not grass, it's plankton. And if we kill the oceans, well, 
you know, goodbye yeah, Goodbye us, anyway. Yeah, and so so on that, let's say yeah. goodbye on to us. On that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note, let's say goodbye to us. We'll do a we'll do a part two, and uh, yeah, as we say in Quebec or in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Ah, uh, you're very welcome, my friend. Anytime, and we'll speak tomorrow. Yes. Cheers. All right, and thanks to all the listeners. Yeah, you guys uh, keep tuning into Mitch because he is the man. Thank you. For, all right, my friend. Thank you for that, and and thank you for for Westwood One for giving me the opportunity to do these interviews. So. Thank you, uh, well, thank you. they're smart, too. <laughs> You're welcome, my friend. We'll talk Cheers. tomorrow. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Jack Russell. A big, big thank you to Jack for that. And, uh, Steve, thank you for uh, co-hosting today. Certainly hope you enjoyed the experience. And, uh, I had a blast. I had so much fun, Mitch. And thank yes. you, all you rock talkers out there, for listening. Yes. And just before we leave, uh, we had left off on the Def Leppard story as you were in a hotel room i believe in albany uh and then or hershey pennsylvania just uh let, let's wrap up that story and then let's say bonsoir good avida zane to the fans <laughs> for sure yeah so you know getting back to what i was telling you before with uh you know i was in hershey pennsylvania rehearsed did a quiet rehearsal with joe and viv in the hotel room had fun and a lot of laughs and you know a lot of relief on i could definitely see it on joe's face that yeah we're going to do this and uh you know i i've said this before def leppard has a certain way of i guess initiating me into their into their arms and this time was no different you know the first time when i filled in for vivian in uh 2014 first show i did was uh the wembley stadium nfl pregame thing in front of 90,000 people it was my first time ever in london and you know, it's like, yeah, thanks, guys. No warm-up show, no club show. Yeah, put me out there in front of 9,000 people on, you know, in front of a billion people on TV. And then this time when I was filling in for Phil, the first show was Hershey Park Stadium in Pennsylvania, 27,000 people, you know. And it's like, here, here, here we go, you know, again. You know, it's never it's – always, it's always big with those guys. And, and, but at least they know that I'm always up to the, the challenge. And that was it. The first show was Hershey Park Stadium, 27,000 people went out there and we crushed it and it was uh, you know the footage is out there and it was uh it was incredible and then i did uh, i did buffalo then the following night that was thirteen thousand people and then uh the, the third show i did the leopard was uh was cleveland at the where the cavaliers play and then the third show was when i finally hit my groove you know like everything all the parts all the moves everything was just feeling so good and so that was like a 10 out of 10 you know, on on the Richter scale, so it was incredible. You know, another great run, and you know, with Def Leppard, you know, as I've told those guys, uh, you know, for for the last five years that I've been, you know, in the organization, whatever you need from me, you know, I thought jokingly, I told Joe, if you need me to come over to Ireland and cut your lawn, I'll do that as well. So <laughs> That's funny. They, they always know that I'm there for them. I love them. They're my brothers, and they always know they can count on me. Yeah, and and just imagine twenty seven thousand people in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Now. If Rock actually wasn't dead, imagine how many would have shown up. Probably 50, right? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that, that's that's always the funniest. And the number, you know, this tour with Journey and Def Leppard, I mean, I think, you know, when I, when I was leaving, I think, you know, the word the word was 55 of the shows are sold out. You know, so they, they um, so, you know, it's just great to see, you know, Def Leppard after, you know, continue year after year building their band and just becoming, they're becoming bigger and bigger every year. And that's, uh, you know, 40 years in for those guys is incredible. It's amazing. And uh, next week on the uh, on the show, I will have, 
Journey guitarist Neil Sean, and I think probably you should probably come back on and co-host. I would love to make sure. Yeah, make sure you tell Neil I said hi. I love him, and he was he had some kind words backstage. You know, uh, after the first show, he was like, "Man, Steve, you know, I've known Neil. We were label mates together back with Hardline on MCA Records, so we did shows with them, and we always got to hang. And I'm such a fan of Neil, but he he said something very cool that I really didn't even realize. You know, he said, uh, "I think me and Joe were standing there, and he comes walking by." And we were talking about the whole me filling in. He goes, man, you know, I know you filled in for Vivian a couple years ago, and now you're filling in for Phil. He goes, I don't know any guitar player that's ever done that, filled filled in for two major guitar players in a major band. So I was like, man, that's cool. I'm like, Neil, you know what? I need that quote for my resume. <laughs> yeah, and just wait what the quote will look like when you replace uh, Sav. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> oh, thank cool, you, Steve. Man. Always a pleasure. And uh, there you have it folks uh, another episode of rock talk with mitch lafon here on westwood one from the westwood one podcast network